You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Moe Gamer podcast. I'm Pete Davison from moegamer.net and as usual I'm joined by my good friend Chris Kasky from mrgildapixels.com. How are you doing today Chris? I'm doing great Pete, how are you? Yeah, not bad. It's uh, got cool and rainy here, just to have the stereotypical British conversation about the weather. But uh, <laughs> I don't care because I spend all my time indoors playing video games, so it doesn't really matter to me. Even, so. even when it's nice outside, my usual response is, it's a perfect day to play video games with the windows open. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I love it when it's cool because it means that it doesn't get too hot inside and you can just sit and play video games in peace and enjoy the nice, gentle, relaxing sound of the raindrops outside. So, that's nice. Alright, so, uh, we're going to be following our usual three-part format today. We're going to kick off with a discussion of the news, and it's a bit of a sort of grab bag of bits and pieces today, rather than sort of anything too major. Um, But there's a few interesting things to talk about. It's been surprisingly dead, considering we haven't done one of these in like four weeks. Usually when we we have such a long hiatus, we've got to do like a two-hour news bash, but it's really not that much. But it's been, it's, there was sort of like that, I mean, that was the reason we did our, our whole The Happenings episode last time, wasn't it? Because there was a big flurry of news sort of around TGS. the start of, yeah, TGS and sort of all the September and October releases and so on. But uh, yeah, it's sort of probably quietening down a bit uh, in the run up to the holiday season, Black Friday and that sort of thing now. So uh, unless you care about Call of Duty, which we don't, so whatever. <laughs> um, anyway, um Okay, so, uh, yeah, news first, and then our second segment will be what we've been playing recently, uh, if either of us have been playing much recently, so I know I've been playing pretty much one thing. Um, Chris, I don't know if you've managed to find any time to play anything, so that might be a fairly short segment. I have, actually. It, you have? Wonderful. Yeah, Fantastic. I've got a couple, couple things. Excellent. Okay, and then our third segment today will be our main topic, which we will be talking about video pinball. Uh, which uh, is uh, an interesting subject to talk about, and uh, one that I don't know a huge amount about, so it's uh, going to be an opportunity for me to learn some things, and um, an opportunity for, for you, Chris, to learn a little bit about sort of the early days of things as well, so we'll have a nice sort of exchange of knowledge going on. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, beginning with the news then. So first thing you posted uh, was a thing about Alpha Dream, which I must confess I haven't actually read up on yet. So yeah. um, what happened there? Yeah, well, it's just that Alpha Dream is no more, and I just wanted to take a moment to, uh, to, to rest oh yes, this was, to, this was the Mario and Luigi guys, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes, it was. Just and I just wanted to take a minute to pay a little lip service to how wonderful and unique a development house they mm. were, and how the world is going to be poorer without them because yes, yes, definitely, they were quite amazing and especially for me as a pixel art enthusiast their dogged determination to continue to use pixel art even into the modern era um, and just ramp up the resolution and the strength of their pixel art in each entry of the mario rpg series Mm. Uh, and uh they also made some other stuff they were actually pretty much one of the lead developers for the whole Hamtaro franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what they're most known for is obviously the Mario and Luigi series. So yeah. it'll be really interesting to see what happens moving forward. Um, interestingly enough, uh, the reboot, the remake of Bowser's Inside Story that came out last year is officially the worst-selling Mario game ever. 
which is probably which is probably <laughs> why Alpha Dream is gone. Yes. But um, but yeah, they were just a, a, a vibrant and creative development house, and I really mm. hope everyone there finds a, a new a new place to be and a new place to make things because. Yeah, it, it really sucks that these games are not. Even if Mario and Luigi continues with another development house, it'll never have the same flavor, right? Mm. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I've only played one of those games, but I I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed sort of the way they handled um, sort of the, the the fact that sort of Mario and Luigi have never actually spoken in many of the games, and they just use that sort of adorable gibberish for both of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so good yeah. fantastic well, yeah sad news sad news definitely and let's uh let's hope they uh the people involved find um suitable gainful employment elsewhere there's, uh, there's a lot of talented people amongst that bunch mm-hmm. all right uh talking of talented people um we have uh hideki kamiya has said that okami is going to be back and also everyone's e3 darling uh ikumi nakamura is uh hoping to work with him on it as well so um this is all very exciting there's uh sort of no real specific news or anything about it yet but um yeah it's pretty much just an offhanded comment really like yeah. every, everyone's being very cautious to, like not get too excited but just like my god how amazing would it be just yeah. <laughs> to have a new okami yeah uh, and to have um nakamura working on it again as well so j- Cause she's, she's seen... off that she's off that other game now yeah yeah i mean i mean i don't she, know what happened is... there it, yeah, it was really weird because like she was she was so high profile at E three in the presentation for um, I can't even remember what it's called now. Now that I yeah, don't care about same. it, yeah. um, and, uh, <laughs> I, to be fair, I didn't really care about it that much in the first place. But no, I didn't. But but she she, she I, I was I was really surprised because she, she sort of left the company almost immediately after E three, and she was such a huge part of the initial announcement and excitement for that game. It just seemed really surprising. But she she seems to be quite happy doing whatever it is she's doing at the minute. Um, and uh, yeah, if she gets the opportunity to work with Camille, who I know she really looks up to and sort of cut her game development teeth with, um, yeah, if they can work together again, that'd be fantastic. So um, yeah, nothing much more to say about that at the minute, but the prospect of a new Akami game has me moist with excitement. So. <laughs> Um. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of speculation going around now that there's kind of a bit of a second renaissance happening at Capcom. Yeah, um, definitely. This, the success of the most recent Devil May Cry and this kind of resurgence in interest in Mega Man. I don't yeah. know, that's that's not the right way to phrase it. There's not, it's not a resurgence in interest in Mega Man. They just pulled their heads out of their butts and started releasing Mega Man stuff again. Yes. And surprise, people bought it. Um, yes. Because people love Mega Man. So, like, they're, they're starting to really, like... Reass- oh, and and of course, all those newer Resident Evil games that are essentially are tributes or remakes of classic yeah. Resident Evil stuff. They're really. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say Resident Evil. Resident Evil Two remake was really yeah. well received, wasn't it? As well, and they're talking about maybe doing Dino Crisis as well at some point. Oh, sh- I would about lose that. it. I love those games. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's a real a real discussion about Capcom starting to pay attention to the older mm. franchises and um, all, all, in all the horror. Horror slash gaming circles I run, and now everyone's like, "Okay, okay, is it Darkstalkers time yet?" <laughs> like, because yeah. like every couple, every like six months or so, someone gets on. They're like, "Let's have a Darkstalkers that looks like Street Fighter Five, yeah, like conversation," yeah. and that would make me a very happy man because yes, yes, indeed, yeah. It's 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 cool to see Capcom sort of uh, 
picking themselves up a bit and sort of realizing that the way they were doing things wasn't optimal to say the least um so yeah there's a few other companies that could do with doing that as well i mean we we talked a bunch of episodes back about konami um they're still sort of trying to find the right way to handle things from the look of things it's a castlevania mobile game out yay well i have a glimmer of hope about konami one of the games i'll talk about and what we've been playing section is the new contra and although yeah. I don't like it, I like the fact that there is a new Contra, right? Yes. Like it's, even though yes. the game's not great, it's still a step in the right direction. Yes, there's, there's, some, there's been some interesting discussion about that recently. There was um, a review I read that was, that was I mean, we'll, we'll get on to this a little bit later, but there was a review I read that was sort of saying that while this isn't necessarily a good Contra, there's things you can enjoy about this on yes. its own terms. and that's, so which that's is, my which is cool. approach, so, yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, moving on, just a quickie. Uh, the um, Panzer Dragoon remake is definitely going to be getting a physical release from the sound of things. We don't know exactly what form that's going to take yet, if it's going to be a limited run, which uh, chances are it probably will be, I'm guessing. Um, but we it's don't know a Sega one way or the published other game, though, so it probably will be. Yeah, Sega. maybe. Maybe. Uh, we'll have to wait and see it but basically basically the developers are saying that you need to keep an eye on uh their social media to see uh what's happening with that so there, there is there is a um a standalone um social media account just for that panzer dragoon remake now so uh keep an eye on that if you want to know a bit more that's about all to say on that in a minute uh next up another sort of exciting proposed new project um this is uh, Suda51 and Swery65 have been chatting about doing a secret project. And they, um, yeah, so and there's been several articles about that. I'm just trying to try and find the yeah, right it's, one. It's they, got they a actually, name now. Yeah, it was, I'm just trying to find that. It was called Halloween something? Or th- Hotel Barcelona. Hotel Barcelona. Barcelona. There we go. Um, so, yeah, this is um, Swery65, Swery who is... <laughs> Has now rebranded himself as Sweary sixty nine on Twitter. Not for the reason, not for the reason you might think, but because he was listed as the sixty ninth best game developer of all time, and he he didn't understand why everyone was just posting nice after his tweet on it. Uh, <laughs> someone have to explain it. <laughs> I don't know if anyone did, but no, his name is still Sweary sixty nine at the minute, and it's, that just makes me very happy. Um, but yeah, so so they they revealed that on October the twenty third. And they, they were also in talks with uh, the guy behind the Siren series as well, whose mm. name I've forgotten offhand. And I think he's going to be involved with it. Um, and then there's um, Yukio Kallio as well, who is the composer and singer-songwriter and artist who's worked on Minute, Nuclear Throne, Celeste, Luftrausers, Pixel Junk Monsters 2, Bleed 2, is going to be... Or, or is interested in making the music for it as well. I don't think he's been specifically um, confirmed as that yet, but um, Swery put great. out put, put out a tweet saying that he's interested in working with them on that as well. So, yeah, this is all very exciting. Like, some of my favourite developers coming together to do something cool there. Um, again, we don't know a, a ton about it yet, but, uh, yeah. We live there's, in glorious there's, times. There's a lot of uh, a lot of creativity in one room getting those people together, and it'll be fascinating to see what they come up with. I wonder. I worry about a clash of egos. In that, in that, <laughs> yeah. like, who, I guess their styles aren't so disparate that they would clash, though. I feel like no, they've got so much common ground in terms of yeah. And I mean, this this precedent for um, certainly Suda in particular working with other people and sort of not going too far and putting his own particular brand of stuff on there, like. Um, if we look at we look back at Project Zero Four, 
um suda was heavily involved with that but mm. it's it's not it's not a suda game he just uses a lot of the a lot of the sort of things grasshopper are very good at to yeah. um to sort of improve that game and make it good and it was a really good game as a result which makes it a real shame that it didn't get an official localization but um if you check out my project zero feature that i wrote around this time last year uh, you can find out a bit more about how to get that running on your own wii because it's surprisingly not too difficult all right uh continuing on uh, another quickie steam has introduced a new feature called uh, remote play um which um I- Besides just sort of being able to access your PC remotely, uh, it also allows for local multiplayer games to be played um, online, which is cool. Um, so you can you have to join the Steam beta to do that, and you can play a local multiplayer game, and then from your friends list in, in the Steam beta, you can choose remote play together. And what that then means is that the, um, the person playing remotely will see a, a, a feed of what's running on your computer, and it will effectively trick your computer into thinking that there's another controller connected and um, playing on, on those games. So that gives uh, sort of a new lease on life to all these local multiplayer games that have been fashionable for a while. And for those of us, which is a lot of us, who have great trouble getting other people to leave their houses these days. I, I know what I said at the beginning, but <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah but but I for people those... to come over to my house. Oh, exactly. I exactly. leave my exactly. house. No, exactly. But exactly. I have a cozy house. Come over. Well, I've got a I've got a cozy house, and I've got all the good games machines. So you know, I don't want to go to a boring place that has like babies and stuff in it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So so that allows you to to uh, to take a game that is specifically designed for local multiplayer and to play it with right. someone who is not in the room with you, which is nice. Um, that's about that on that. Um, Right, there was a whole shitload of news announced to do with uh, Mavlove uh, a while back as well. I don't know a ton about Mavlove yet, because it's something I backed on Kickstarter, but I haven't got around to exploring it, because it's one of those things that is an absolutely massive project that will take a while to cover. So I haven't sort of dared approach it yet, but people who are into Mavlove have been shitting their pants over this stuff, because there's a whole bunch of things uh, that have been announced for it. So... Mavlove, if you're unfamiliar, was originally a series of visual novels um, that sort of it's quite notorious for sort of starting off in um, sort of a fairly conventional sort of look. It looks like a fairly conventional high school romance sort of thing. And then somewhere along the line, I don't know how it happens. It becomes giant robots. Um, I, I don't know the details of where that transition happens, but yeah, that, that's what happens. Um, and people really love it. It's it's sort of one of the most well-regarded visual novel series of all time, sort of even before it was officially localized, uh, thanks to Kickstarter. And uh, yeah, so the things that were announced is um, Mavlove Integrate, which is a sequel to Mavlove Alternative, which is the, the last of the sort of initial batch of visual novels. Uh, they're currently planning that at the minute. Uh, they haven't decided what it's going to be released on, um, but they've said it's not going to be an omnibus-style collection of stories because there's been a bunch of Muv Love spin-offs that are sort of short stories and things rather than actual sequels. This is going to be an actual sequel. Uh, the original author, Hirohiko Yoshida, is in charge of the planning and some of the scenario as well as the mech design. Um, and yeah, the sort of concept art for this all looks very nice at the minute. Uh, moving on, uh, there is Project Mikhail, which is a uh, sort of action mech game where you control your own tactical surface fighter. There's lots of customizability. Uh, I think it's a free-to-play game, but they've specifically said it's not a gacha game. Uh, Hmm. So 
um there's there's going to be they they haven't decided what the payment model is going to be yet but they're, they're thinking something either like um either a subscription that might give you additional features or uh, a battle pass thing similar to what Fortnite does um okay. so in that way you'd sort of pay a certain amount and you'd be able to unlock stuff but you can still play it for free um so the technical director of this game is Yoshiki Kashitani, who previously worked on Vagrant Story, Dirge of Cerberus, Final Fantasy XIII, and Final Fantasy XIV. These are all uh, games other- I like very much. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, other people involved... There's some more here as well. Other people involved have worked on Front Mission, uh, White Knight what? Chronicles, and Nino what? Kuni. Why? <laughs> yeah. So this oh, should be cool. I this- love White Knight Chronicles. Don't even get me started. <laughs> yeah so this this might be a good route into Mavlove love if you've not come across it before and if you, you you're sort of not particularly thrilled with the idea of playing through 100 hours of visual novels I was uh, but say, this, yeah Muv this love, is a long way off yet Mavlove yeah. love gets the distinct award of being game series chris looks at uh news for every time and wishes it was a different genre because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like obviously i love the art and the girls are adorable and the robots are beautiful and every time i see like a news article pop pop up with like a picture of a beautiful girl in a plug suit standing on the hand of her giant robot and i'm like yeah why aren't you a turn-based tactical rpg <laughs> why <laughs> why why <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, on that note, uh, they are doing an anime of Muv Love Alternative as well. Score. Um, so I'll that was that. announced. That was announced at the um, at this same event. So um, yeah, so it's it's not going right from the very beginning, but it's going from sort of the one that everyone particularly likes in the series. So they haven't given any details about when this is happening or anything yet. Uh, but yeah, there's there's definitely some sort of anime happening. Um, there have been a couple of previous Muv Love animes, um, but they, those are all based on the spin-off stories that I've mentioned there. So rather than the original story, um, they've um, yeah they've sort of taken on side stories like Schwarz's Mark and, and Total Eclipse and so on. Um, if you go over to uh, Twinfinite.net, um, Giuseppe over there is a big Muv Love fan, and he's written a lot about all this stuff recently, including um, a fairly comprehensive article about. How you need, yeah, what you need to know to get up to speed like, like, on what the is series. <laughs> yeah, what what the fuck is this? Um, yeah, so 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 go, go and go and have a read of that if you if you haven't seen it already or if you're interested about it. So, Twinfinite puts some good content out. Yeah, G- Giuseppe is 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 in in particular is very good. He's very passionate about what he does. So, yeah, I'm always happy to support what he's doing. Absolutely. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, we have had both an announcement of and confirmation that it is being localized for a sequel to Root Letter, which is Root Film. Um, so this is from um, Karakawa Games, um, and the the previous one was um, a, quite interesting to me because it was a visual novel slash adventure game with a cast that was much older than you you typically have in this sort of game so it was all people who were sort of in their late 20s early 30s and that sort of thing and it was them looking back on things that happened in the past it was really interesting um root film looks like a similar sort of idea of uh sort of a, a, a mystery story unfolding in a real world um japanese locale it looks like they're really sort of playing up the mechanical aspects of this as well um because root letter had sort of adventure game mechanics to it it was very much like one of the ace attorney games uh, but it was still very obviously a visual novel underneath so it was very much you had to go to the right location and do a specific thing in order for the story to advance um root film 
I imagine in practice it's probably going to be a similar sort of thing, but all the screenshots we've seen so far sort of place quite an emphasis on the mechanical side of things. So you can sort of look around areas for different objects, talk to different people. Um, Root Letter had a cool sort of um, interrogation mechanic. Uh, again, similar to Ace Attorney, where you had to sort of present evidence. And there was uh, like an emotion meter at various points where you had to choose how intensely you were going to argue a point at different, uh, at different stages in that and uh root film sort of presents this almost like a fighting game um so so it's got this um sort of lovely kind of comic book style art to it so it's got very sort of colorful bright flat shaded characters atop quite realistic looking backgrounds it's got a really lovely look to it so there's a trailer out for that pq are going to be localizing it again so um that is coming for playstation 4 and nintendo switch um in spring 2020 for japan but they haven't announced when the um uh localized version is going to happen if it's anything like root letter it will be very soon after the japanese version because that got announced and localized incredibly quickly it was like a, a couple of months at most so hopefully this will be a similar situation uh continuing on uh there is a third natsumi atari tingo projects remake in production so this follows wild guns Hell reloaded yeah. and ninja saviors return of the warriors uh we don't know what it is yet uh more information will be announced very soon but there is a third game in this series on the way is anybody speculating like i can't even really think of what it would be no um i mean no i i have no idea what this could be but um i mean yeah those are like the two, <laughs> like right, like Ninja, <laughs> Ninja Warriors, and like I can't think of another like Natsume sixteen-bit era game that like yeah. the cartridge goes for hundreds of dollars and like people would scream for this to exist. Like I, yeah. I just I can think of older Natsume games, like Natsume's output on the NES, mm -hmm. stuff like Shadow of the Ninja and whatnot. But I can't think of anything from like the sixteen-bit that is like ripe for this. Yeah no idea i don't know but these, these this is great news because um those were incredible <laughs> the, nin mm. the ninja warriors is so ridiculously good yeah 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 i'm just i'm just looking through their past games on here isn't nothing nothing immediately jumps out to me as something that people would be really jumping at the bit for but uh i don't know we'll see uh, but yeah that, that is happening there was a, a third one of those on the way so look forward to that uh continuing on uh analog has announced a new system called the analog pocket which is designed to play games from all game boy systems and uh with adapters um it will also play stuff uh from various other handhelds as well including game gear neo geo pocket color atari links um game boy Adv oh no be beg your pardon so the basic system will play game boy game boy color and game boy advance and yeah. then so non-nintendo platforms will be with uh, adapters so yeah, this this looks very cool, and um, I require this to live. <laughs> it has a beautiful HD screen. I need yep. it. It's so good, and also uh, it has a dock that you can connect it to the TV with as well. Which Does is it? Awesome. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Oh yeah. shit! This thing is perfect. This will this will probably be my first analog console. I haven't dived. I haven't dove in and bought any other stuff yet. Even though I pretty much look at the Genesis like every at least once a week and like yeah. hover over the buy button <laughs> honestly the only thing that's prevented me from buying an analog console at this point is that they don't seem to make the, the nintendo anymore yeah 
and I can't, so I can't get one. And I kind of just want yeah. them all. And like, believe, weirdly enough, like my inability to get the full set is preventing me from wanting to buy the other ones. <laughs> I know, I know the feeling. I know the feeling. But yeah, so this is due for release in twenty twenty. It's looking like it's going to be about two hundred dollars. Um, but yeah, I, I will, yeah, I will probably jump on that as well if I can play sort of stuff from all those systems. Like, just just being able to play like Atari Lynx games will yes. be cool yes. because. Um, Atari Lynx has a lot of shit on it, don't get me wrong, but uh, Atari Lynx also has a bunch of really cool games on it as well, and Atari Lynx emulation is absolute dog crap at the minute, so um, it's not something you can really do very much with at the minute, which is a shame. And of um, course, this isn't emulation. So, yes, <laughs> so this exactly. Is, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And also, it means that you can play an Atari Lynx without having something the size of a small air conditioner in your pocket. So Yeah. Um, ditto, which, ditto for yeah. Game Gear. I think I'm yeah. most excited about this for for game gear yeah definitely definitely to play the weird game gear like fantasy star spin-offs and yep. like the the weird game gear shining force yeah there's some really cool sonic games on game gear as well yeah yeah the original yeah. the original sonic on game gear as we've said many times with that bang and yuzo koshiro soundtrack yep yep definitely <laughs> Alright, uh, continuing on. Uh, so we've had an announcement that a Dreamcast platformer called Napple Tale has had a full English fan translation. Uh, you, you seem to know something about this already, so tell me a bit about what's going on here. Yeah, so I mean, so Napple Tale is just a really interesting game that never made its way west for the Dreamcast. Um, it was kind of made during that time where people were kind of like, eh, the industry's over side-scrollers for the west. Like the west, like mm -hmm. you know, like sometimes when like hardware transitions happen like someone in like the game publishing industries they get their like panties in a twist about like publishing things that are newer that feel old kind of yeah. like how in the playstation era there was like a whole huge thrust at like oh people in the west don't want 2d games anymore so mm -hmm. we never got like gunner's heaven and like a lot of cool side scrollers uh so it was the same with napple tail it was just like the yeah. people in the west don't want a side scroller with a with a fairy tale fantasy theme that's kind of directed a little bit towards girls so like but if you like super cute stuff with pastel colors like i do like napple mm -hmm. tail is just this beautiful cute fairy tale based 2.5d side scroller with some light rpg elements and just a really charming visual aesthetic um and kind of a like a very gentle thrust to the game if that makes sense like a lot of like mm -hmm. the things you're doing are to like help people and you're like fairy tale village and like it's just a very sweet cute game it's like nothing super groundbreaking but it's just really cool that uh people are going to get a chance to play it in english yeah yeah that's super cool so the uh franchisation for that is hosted on romhacking.net which is where a lot of these things seem to end up these days so just go and have a look over there and you should be able to find it along with how to apply it uh all right moving on um I just want to take a brief moment to uh, laugh at Bethesda, if, uh, <laughs> if you'll excuse me for a minute. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, most people listening have probably seen this by this point, but Bethesda has announced a subscription service for Fallout 76, um, which, among other things, allows you to play as single player. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Um yeah, the response to this has not been positive, shall we say. Yeah, um, you're kidding me. 
Yeah, there's um, there's uh, someone from 4chan made a fantastic uh, mock-up site um, that is basically just absolutely ripping it to shreds. Um, I, I think it got taken down quite quickly, but the it's it's already on archive.org, so you can see it. So that's that's worth a look. But it's oh, it's ridiculous. But yeah, I, I just don't understand what their intention was with this at all. Um, yeah, so I, so I think they, that's, that's so they made the game, uh-huh. didn't have a single player element. Yep, really, and then they decided they were gonna make people pay for the privilege of patching in something that should have been there from the first place is this kind of what we're yeah and it's 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 not even true single player it, it's just playing solo online so it's not like you can play it offline or anything it's still online but in order to play yeah. by yourself you are paying for the privilege of doing that that's all <laughs> Yeah, I, I found this site here. Private world, scrap boxes, and more coming to Fallout 76 with Fallout Fuck You First. Ever since Fallout 76 launch, we have consistently done nothing to improve and involve the experience based on your shitty feedback. That's why we're excited to launch Fallout Fuck You First, a premium ass-pounding membership that offers something dumbass players have been asking for since launch. Private worlds for you and select idiots. Sorry, friends. So we decided to put it behind a paywall. Yeah. <laughs> I like feature, huge feature, and features in quotes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. Oh, it makes me it makes me so happy when these things backfire. It's, uh, it's every great. like what like what is Bethesda's deal? I've this no is, idea. This is, this is all they do. This is literally all they do. Like like like. In the whole world of, like, making friends, right, and, like, being empathetic, one of the things that they always coach you when you're, like, meeting new people and when you're having, like, a tiff with a friend, right, if you're, if you're a friend who prides themselves in being empathetic and, like, getting along well and being, being a good friend to other people, one of, like, the hard truths they tell you to lay on people when you're having an altercation is when people just keep saying they're sorry but don't change, right? Yeah. Their response yeah. is... Stop, don't be sorry be better yeah yeah like, like stop saying you're sorry reflect on what you've done and then don't do that thing again <laughs> <laughs> this is all this is all follow bethesda is a bad friend this is all this is all they do <laughs> uh it's it's just been a string of bad decisions and to be fair to them it's a string of all of their bad decisions have been slightly different in some way. So there was the the pre-order debacle with the um, with the with the bag and the jacket and stuff like that. That was, and then there's this, and then there's just Fallout seventy six in general. <laughs> oh, it's, well, this is my my yeah. favorite thing circulating over the past couple weeks is, is like as stuff about the PlayStation Five becomes more and more concrete. Like just like all the memes about like the the new Skyrim port. <laughs> <laughs> that's ine- that's inevitable for the, for the PlayStation Five. Oh God, don't it'll happen. You know it'll happen. It's it'll like Elder Six. No, we never announced that. It's his Skyrim again. Yes, I'll probably buy it. I know you don't <laughs> like Skyrim, but I do. No, 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 no. I, I won't. I won't. I did my it. time with Skyrim. I did my time with Skyrim. I spent forty hours playing it before realizing I wasn't having any fun whatsoever. There you so. go. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, moving on. Um. So, uh, continuing, we have a bit more news about um, 13 Sentinels Aegis Rim, uh, which has got a demo coming out in Japan on October the 30th, which is very soon. Um, 
at the time of recording. Um, and you'll be able to carry over your save data from the demo to the full game. Um, the first print version of the game in Japan is also coming with a reprint of Princess Crown for PS4. Yes. Um, a George Kamitami uh, PS4 theme based on the game. A digital art book and um, a application ticket for a 13 Sentinels Aegis Rim premium talk event. Oh, whatever that is. I so have no idea presumably, what that means. Yeah, but presumably some sort of online um, online event or talk or something like that. But that's, that's quite an interesting thing I've not seen before. But yeah, tell me about Princess Crown because you, you're excited. <sighs> yeah, so this is noteworthy because now that George Kamatani and Vanillaware have a following in the West, Princess Crown was George Kamatani's first commercial game. This was for right. Saturn. Mm-hmm. Um, this did not come west because of kind of what I mentioned earlier. This was during the specifically in the Dream uh, in the Saturn. There was a tremendous thrust from Sega to not really allow many uh, sprite-based 2D games to come west. Yeah. Like there yeah. was almost a you had to really fight to get a sprite-based game to make its way west uh, on the Saturn because um, the. The industry way of talking about it was always just like America's dreaming in polygons, right? Like nobody mm-hmm. wanted to see that anymore. Um, but Princess Crown is just a traditional George Kamatani game. And in many ways, um, Odin Sphere is considered an, an uh, unofficial successor to Princess Crown. It has many of, it has many similarities. Um, yeah. So now that there's a following for his work and for Vanillaware in the West, and they're doing this thing, it's hard for me to imagine this won't get a translation mm-hmm. and and come over here, um, which would mean the ability to play this and potentially even own this. Yep. So uh, I I mean I'm very hot and cold on Kamatani's work. Um, I often find the games themselves aren't good, but they're so beautiful that I love him anyway. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of the time when I play a Vanillaware game, I'm like, this game is floaty and it's rubbish, but it looks so beautiful that I'm still like engaged with it. Um, but just like from a historical standpoint, the possibility of having access to a modern playable version of Princess Crown that won't require me to use translation patches or bust my Saturn yeah. out is really exciting. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah, definitely cool. Yeah, I'm up for up for that certainly. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I know you're you haven't been super hot on Ages Rim, but um, yeah, I, I I think it looks kind of cool, and I'm I mean, certainly interested and interested to see what what how it ends up being. I mean, and, let's uh, be clear, I'm gonna buy it. <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah. gonna buy it. It just it just yeah. it's not what I wanted. Um, yeah, but you know, yeah. as we often say, you you. You can have your judgments, but at the end of the day, you need to appreciate and evaluate a game for what it is, and not whether yeah. or not it's the game you wanted it to be. So, yeah, like, absolutely. yes, when I heard George Kamatani was making a mech game, I definitely didn't want it to be a weird turn-based grand strategy title. I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to play like a sweet action game where I was yeah. smashing things with giant robots. But yep, um, I'm still gonna play this game and, and see what mm-hmm. it's got because it is very beautiful even like the mm. even the st- strategy gameplay from like that grand overhead map perspective it has a real stylized look where like the kind of like the like there's these like like the lines of like the action are like superimposed over it it mm. just looks like a crazy like missile like missile doomsday scenario map from like yeah. a roland emmerich disaster movie like it, it looks yeah. it looks really slick like this could be a really fun game 
And honestly, when Kamatani makes something with a strategic or turn-based bent, those are usually his better games because they lack the floaty elements that I find make some of his action games a little less great to play. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens here. Mm-hmm. Cool. Right, uh, continuing on, we've had another little snippet about Warriors Orochi 4 Ultimate. So we've got another new character being added in the new version, which is Yang Zhan. Um, so he's the third brand new character to be revealed after Hades and Gaia. Um, not a lot about him uh, as yet, but he looks kind of cool. He's got a big sort of um, polearm type thing with, I don't know what you call that weapon. It's kind uh, of like a... It's kind of like, like a, a spear with the, almost with a sword on the end of it, isn't it? Yeah, but, it looks um, like an oar, kind of. Like a, <laughs> uh, the whole reason I posted this, I don't even care about this new guy. I just love that this article points out that with the addition of him, Hades, and Gaia, this now puts Orochi 4 Ultimate at 176 playable characters. Record breaking! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's insane. That's insane. I mean, those of you have been following my video series um, that I've now finished the Warriors Orochi playthrough, um, that had 79 characters, and that was the first one. And that's a lot. <laughs> but then to have 100 more on top of that, that's yeah. insane. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait to get this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it looks super cool. They've um, they've sort of been showing a bit about some of the some of the various modes and um, different ways to play as well. This this sort of infinite mode they've got in there sounds like fun as well. Sort of working your way through various floors and challenges and missions and stuff that kind of you sort of keep working your way through things and recruiting things and finding items. Lots of different ways to play. Looks looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, I cannot wait. Uh, yep, moving on. Uh, we got a new trailer for Grand Blue Fantasy Versus, which reveals a couple of new characters who are Zeta and Vasavraga. Um, I don't know the story of Grand Blue well enough to know who those are, but I think I've seen Vasaraga. Uh, sorry, Zeta, not Vasaraga. Um, at some point, but yeah, these are, these are both cool characters, and the people who play a lot of Grand Blue Fantasy online uh, on mobile that I follow seem to be quite excited about these two being included. So, yeah, cool. Um, not a lot more to say about those really but yeah they're neat characters so uh, Zeta is a um, sort of blonde haired girl who is using looks like a sort of double ended staff type thing I guess mm -hmm. uh, and then Vasaraga is uh, uh, I don't know what you'd call him really he's a man, <laughs> he's a, he's a man is what he is he's just this yes. big armoured beef monster with a scythe and, yes. it's, and it's classic it's the classic, like, he looks evil, but he's not character, which is, like, mm -hmm. always my favorite. Yeah. Like, I don't know yeah. a lot about Grand Blue either, but, like, when I read the description of him, I was like, oh, I want to be that dude's friend. Oh, yeah, here we are. The intimidating size of his blade and his immunity to pain sap opponents of their will to fight. Though his somber bearing and curt speech can make him seem unapproachable, he is, in fact, a calm, kind person who will always go out of his way to help those in need. But he looks um, like a bad guy. He looks oh, like yeah, yeah. he looks yeah. like if you took a judge from Final Fantasy XII and made it even like more evil looking. Yeah. Yeah. But but he's not. He's nice apparently. So I love it. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I'm really looking forward to this game. Yeah. Um, it's like not not for the versus fighting side of things, but for the the sort of story based uh, brawler stuff they've got going on in it. Yeah. I was so happy to hear when they revealed that and this, that it will sort of have a story that isn't just one on one battles and stuff. So really interested to see how this ta comes out and. Uh, the footage yeah, of this game makes me beautiful. so happy. Like, every yeah. single time I see. I, I can't remember 
every time I watch it, it reminds me of this other fighting game that Arc System Works made years ago on the 360, and I can't remember the name of it. I think it's... I want to say it's Battle Fantasia, maybe? Oh, yes, yeah, I yes, remember the name. yes, yeah. yes, it is Battle Fantasia. So, so back on the 360, Arc System Works made a fighting game with a fantasy setting called Battle Fantasia, and... It did come west. It was on the 360, and uh, no one played it, really, because A, yeah. the fighting game community wasn't huge on the 360, and for some reason they didn't localize... Uh, well, I guess they localized the uh, PS3 version in PAL territories, but not in US territories, which didn't make sense to me. But like right. when, when I watched the footage of this it, it really reminds me of this game and like nobody mm. liked nobody liked this game except for me i thought it was cool as hell <laughs> but i don't know just a little little snippet there that I, I don't know every time i watch this it makes me think of battle fantasia yeah, yeah that's cool yeah i'm definitely excited for this I'm, i i'd like to see it because i i like grand blue fantasy but i kind of don't want to play it because you know mobile game gacha yeah time-consuming, that sort of thing. So having having an opportunity to engage with that universe and those characters in a way that doesn't involve having to spend all your time playing a mobile game is, is great. Because Grand, Grand Blue is a... It's got a really well-built world and some lovely characters and fantastic music and a good story and stuff. But as with most mobile games of that type, it's something you really need to devote a lot of time to to get the most out of it. So, um, yeah, if, if there's a, a way of, uh, of doing that a different way, yeah, I'm all, all for it, definitely. All right, and the final bit of news we got today is that Conan O'Brien is in Death Stranding. Um, so, <laughs> so he, he, he this is my favorite thing that happened this week. <laughs> so uh, Conan O'Brien went to visit Kojima Productions and um, had a look at um, Death Stranding and the trailer and so on. Um, Kojima apparently just asked O'Brien if he wanted to be in the game after that, and that they saw that as a good opportunity to show how they put someone's likeness into the game, and it ended up with. Um, Conan O'Brien having this this cameo is this character called the Wandering MC who provides you with a sea otter suit, which helps you swim better. You have to watch it. Everyone must watch this video, <laughs> and wa and watch the faces Conan O'Brien is making for their 3D camera captured technology. <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. It's absolutely it's absolutely unbelievable. It's so yeah. it's so funny. I I love. I love when Conan does his video game segments. <laughs> he just has such this like wide-eyed enthusiasm from it, like approaching yeah. it from kind of the pers you know I don't know how much of it is an act and how much of it is legit, but he just has this whole like persona that he does these things with, where he's like a wide-eyed outsider who, but who respects it, right? Like he's not making fun of it. Yeah. But, like, he's like, I don't really understand a lot about this, but, like, I'm in it anyway. Like, let's see what this is all about. Like, his gaming yeah. segments are so entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. I just I just love the thumbnail for the video, which is just Conan sitting there going, oh, shit. And Kojima's just sort of sitting there, sitting back in his chair going, yeah. You, you have to, yeah, you have to, you have to watch the whole video. Like, like the, he shows him the trailer and the part where, like, the baby emerges from, like, the throat and, like, gives you the thumbs up. He just turns to Kojima and he goes, what's wrong with you? It's like, it's, it's it's great and then he like flips out when like guillermo del toro pops up yeah it's just it's just a lot of fun i can't wait for this game i have i have no idea what this game is i mean a classic yeah. kojima right like nobody does because like the only footage we have is just like 
digital Norman Reedus with a backpack the size of a Volkswagen Beetle climbing mountains. Yeah. And it's like, there's got to be more to this game than that. Like, yeah. this, like what is going on? <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah. Can you name... Yeah, this- can you name a game that's been so mysterious? Like with the news cycle in gaming, can yeah, you can you name a game in the past fifteen years that you've just been like, I don't know what this game is, <laughs> but I want it. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I I have no idea, and I just I just find it so surprising that sort of I feel like he's explained it to us at some point, but even then, I don't I don't have a I don't have a clue. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Kojima, man. I don't know. Yeah. It's uh. It could be terrible, but it's probably not going to be terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I don't even know. I might have to take like a couple days off <laughs> when this law lo- like it's all I'm going to be able to think about. Yeah. Yeah, uh. it's going to be quite an experience. And it's not it's not a it's not that far away, folks. Um yeah. 2 weeks it turns out. Oh really? Shit. November 8th. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's happening. Oh, God. Oh, uh, God. Also, I think I think Pokemon comes out, like, the same week. Oh, no. It's like, what are, what are they doing? And then, like, there's another game that's launching the same day. And I'm like, why would they do that? There's, yeah. like, another, like, little game that I'm interested in that's launching the same week as... Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember what it is for the life of me now. Right? Surprise! I can't remember what the name of the game I'm also interested in that launches the same week as <laughs> yeah. Death Stranding and New Pokemon. Why uh, would you do yeah. that? Why would you not look at a calendar and be like, you know what? I'm going to do push my game out another two weeks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I find this fascinating because there's 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 a blogger I I, I follow who uh, does some really good writing about games. Is uh, Kim over at Later Levels, and she she's very much someone who. Um, she enjoys both the sort of Western indie sphere and the um, sort of certain parts of the AAA sphere and so on. So she's yeah. like a completely different set of gaming tastes to me. And she, she wrote a post, post the other week that was like, uh, well, I don't think 2019 has been all that great for, for games this year. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh. yeah. It all depends on your tastes. But yeah, I don't exactly. know. I don't know. I'm all about tastes. So... I don't know if I've told you about this or not, but I have a, I have a friend who's a, one of my dearest friends in the whole wide world, and we spend a lot of time together, and we have a lot of fun, and she's kind of, she didn't have video games growing up, mm-hmm. but now she likes them very much, yeah. and um, so her entire framing of video games is really just kind of the modern popular AAA stuff she's had exposure to. Things, yeah. things like a, your, your Assassin's Creed, and she really yeah. likes Red Dead, but um, she's uh, she's an avid reader, right? She's like, so she is mm-hmm. to books like I am to games. She has a massive yeah. library. She's always reading something, like two books at a time. She's a you know she loves to write. She's, she's one of the smartest people I know. Um, mm-hmm. So her focus on gaming is always narrative and character building. So like, I like to do my thing and provide her with really good recommendations. Um, so, like, recently, like, knowing the kind of stuff she's enjoyed, that she's more into, like, the Western open world stuff, I've been like, oh, well, have, have you played Horizon? So I lent her my copy of Horizon, and she freaking loved it. And so now mm-hmm. we've now we've reached that point of trust where it's like, Chris, I'm going to play whatever you recommend to me. So, <laughs> so, so I slipped her Yakuza 0. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, and like, it's like my goal in life is to convert her now to liking weird Japanese games. <laughs> so, like, 
And then, like, I got the text message two days ago. Like, Chris, this is unbelievable. The combat, <laughs> the combat is so much fun. The characters are so much fun. It's like, it's like, yes, yes. Now, like, when Persona Five comes out, I'm like, you're done. <laughs> but when Royal, when Royal comes out, I'm like, this yeah. is it. Like, all I gotta do, because like. I love when I meet people who've never played turn-based, who love narrative-heavy stuff, who've never played a turn-based role-playing game. So, like, it's yeah. really cool. It's really cool to me to to intersect with people like who have varying levels of exposure and varying expertise in terms of the games they like, and then try to like segue them into different tastes. As as I guess where yeah. I'm going with that. That, yeah. was a- that was apropos of nothing, but it's just re- I'm just really proud that I'm slowly turning my friend into someone who likes weird Japanese games. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's the kind of thing you, you almost need an introduction to, isn't it? Because, I, I, I mean, I guess, that, I guess that's like any sort of art form, really. You either have to make a conscious decision that you're going to try something that is out of either your comfort zone or sort of the mainstream coverage of things, or you need someone to say hey, I really like this. You might like it too, based on what I know about you. And I mean, that's that's basically how I got so into Japanese games that I did. I mean, I've, I've always liked, I won't say always, because I, back in the sort of the 8 and 16-bit era, I didn't really get RPGs. But sort of from Final Fantasy VII onwards, I've really liked RPGs and so on. But it was about 2010, 2011 or so, um, that it, it was just a social media conversation with someone who... Um, just posted some stuff to do with uh, some of the games they'd picked up for PlayStation 3. Um, and among them was Neptunia and stuff like that. And she said, I really like this. The reviews hate it, but I really like it. You might want to give it a go based on what I know of your gaming taste. And I did, and I loved it. And basically, here we are. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, funny Same. how that works. Same, yeah. yeah. All right, anyway, so uh, for a slow news week, we've gone on for nearly 50 minutes. So... Uh, <laughs> It's probably a good time to leave a break there. So it's a gift. We'll take a sh- yeah, definitely. We'll take a short break now, uh, and then we will come back and talk a bit about what we've been playing recently. So see you in a moment. Welcome back. For our second segment, we're going to be talking about what we've been playing recently. So, Chris, you said you've had time to get in some time with some stuff recently. So, what have you been up to? Yeah, so uh, two things I wanted to talk about today. I'll, I'll start out with like the, the less positive, but still not super negative, which is uh, I got a chance to check out the new Contra, mm-hmm. uh, Contra Rogue Core. So, um, it's an interesting game. Um, and kind of like we mentioned in the first segment, essentially what we have is the type of game you and I are very good at talking about, which is it's not a very good game, but it is still an interesting game and a curious game worth discussing. Yeah. Um, so uh, first off, it is hideous. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not a graphics. I'm not a graphics guy. And this needs to be prefaced by I'm playing the Switch version. So I don't mm-hmm. know. Is there a PS4 version? Um, uh, not sure. Or is yes, it just so, on the... Yes, there is. 
Yeah, so I'm sure the PS4 version looks better than the Switch version, which has been common. Because in the same vein as Bloodstained, just the, the Switch version just looks like it's smeared with Vaseline. Like, none of it makes any sense how, how like, a game looking this bad was even allowed to be released. <laughs> um, so it looks like garbage, um, which is really unfortunate because, once again, I'm not a graphics and tech guy, but it's distractingly bad. Mm-hmm. Like, to the point where it actually hurts to look at. Like, it gives me a bit of a headache. Um, so what Contra Rogue Corps appears to be, uh, is an attempt to capitalize on Monster Hunter structure, yeah. um, extrapolated onto Contra. So what they've done is they've tried to make a Contra game that harkens back to some of the alternative Contra games that have more of the overhead style with dual analog overhead style, which is not unprecedented. There have been Contra games like this before. Um, Specifically the one, the one, the second one on PS2 is actually like one of my favorite run and guns ever. And it's that overhead style. So it's been done and, and and it's been good. It's they've made some good games. Um, But essentially what happens is, um, They've made a game that's kind of fun to play, but it's just not a great Contra game. Yeah, yeah. So, from from a design perspective, right, there's really... The major thing that makes Contra wonderful is this kind of oxymoron where you feel, at the same time, extremely powerful, but also extremely fragile. Yeah, like that that is like if you could boil contra down to like one thing that makes it compelling like that's what it is is this juxtaposition between just being death incarnate but also just one hit or maybe three hits and you're and you're just done like every minute is dire um and uh rogue core just blows that all yeah So the first thing that doesn't make any sense that they've done with it is that there is a... Your guns overheat. Oh, fun. So we're... we're, (laughs) Yeah, like like I can hear your trepidation. So let me me rephrase this. This is a Contra game where you can't just hold the fire button down and go nuts. Yeah. You actually have to watch a little bar, Phil... And then let go of the trigger. And then, like, there's moments where you're not shooting. If in a Contra game I have to be not shooting, you've made a mistake somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It ad- this adds nothing to the game. There's no, like, tension added by this. I, I, don't, I don't understand this mechanic. So, like... It's one thing if they wanted to do this with, like, special weapons or, like, your rocket launcher or something, but it's, like, your main machine gun, too. Mm-hmm. Like, so it just doesn't make sense, and it robs me of that feeling of just, like, bombastic, like, death machine that I should be feeling when I play Contra. Yeah. Um, and then on the opposite side, they've removed the fragility by giving you, like, a massive shield that can take, like, loads of hits. Mm-hmm. So, like, I haven't felt threatened once playing it um and they put you in these boss battles and they're awful like so you play these stages and then there's boss battles that cap them off and the bosses are just massive bullet sponges with like really boring patterns Mm -hmm. 
that just repeat and they don't get like more challenging like they don't they don't throw like a ton more like you know like their, their patterns don't like shift radically like once they're down to like a quarter health left it, it just they're, they're just slogs so it's not really fun to play yeah and and my feeling is that they're probably like that because you should be playing it multiplayer so like the yeah. enemies the bosses are bullet sponges because there should be three or four people hammering on them but then the game needs to have some kind of intelligent adjustment feature and scale based yeah. on the players. Yeah. Um, maybe it's doing that and it's just doing it poorly. I don't know. But it's just it's just a game that's not a lot of fun to play, mm-hmm. um, which is really the worst thing a game can be. <laughs> um, but on, on, on the positive side, they've done a lot of really neat stuff with it, right? So... They've baked a little story into it, which is rather fun. There's really cool Western comic style, like intertitles, like for the dialogue and stuff. It's really like pulpy and gritty and like it's, it's a good time in the way you would expect Contra to be. And the, um, the monster hunter style elements of like collecting weapon mods and leveling your weapons up and, um, you, you, all your characters are like weird, like cyborg characters. So like you can, you like go to like the underground black market doctors and like you modify your dude with like cybernetic enhancements and stuff that like modify their performance. Yeah. Um, and it, it's clear that you're supposed to replay the same stages for loot and components, which is something I very much love. Like I love games like that. I love Monster Hunter. But the problem is, even when you're at your least powerful in Monster Hunter, the th- like Monster Hunter is fun to play. Yeah. It's it's so mechanically finely honed that even when you're running in there with like a level one like bone sword, like there's a feeling of being threatened, there's a feeling of accomplishment, and a feeling of curiosity and engagement. And um, Contra Rogue Corps just feels like a slog. Mm-hmm. It feels like work, and um, it's unfortunate because there's good ideas working underneath, but they're just not executed well enough. Yeah, yeah. So um, the 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 comment I was making reference to in the in the first part of this was um, it was Robert Allen from Tech Gaming, whose okay. comments whose comments on it were um, after two hours with Contra Road Core, uh, this game isn't Contra. There's a ton of references, but it's a completely different game. It feels like one of the sleeper PS2-era gems with chunky but enjoyable mechanics and plenty of deliberately cheesy dialogue. So, so, so he he enjoys it, mm-hmm. um, but it's but it's not Contra, which which yeah. sounds sounds pretty much what like what you're describing there. It's just something that just happens yeah. to have the Contra name on it, but taken on its own merits there is stuff to enjoy in there so yeah it's like i I need to like i've been i'm harsh on it because i'm a little disappointed right because there hasn't been a new contra in a long time Mm -hmm. and i think there's more they could have done to make it feel spiritually more like contra yeah but but like there's stuff there like because like i said i love a good customizing loot grinding like the monster hunter structure is something i specifically love like i collect monster hunter like games Mm -hmm. because i love that specifically i love crafting and building um so like even after all the negative stuff i said i I still feel compelled like i'm gonna play it some more this afternoon like yeah there's stuff in there worth enjoying and perhaps Mm -hmm. it gets more engaging as i become more powerful yeah but like right but right now it's 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 just not great it it, Mm -hmm. it, that well like like that gentleman said it really just feels like a b-tier ps2 era game which which we love but because it has the the stigma of the the contra legacy hanging mm-hmm. over it like i'm i'm being more harsh in my criticism of it yeah 
Like, if yeah. this had been some indie game that I had paid nineteen ninety nine for, I would probably be like, guys, this is the new gem of the year you've got to check out. But <laughs> be, be, because it's a beloved franchise with decades of legacy behind it from a <laughs> yeah. large company that should know better it just it doesn't it doesn't feel finished it feel it feels like another eight months in the cooker for qa testing and refinements would have really been to its benefit but this is the modern era of gaming so we're going to get that in patches and season and the, passes and the and, season pass yes absolutely yeah oh yes it kind of made my heart sink a bit when i saw contra's season pass i was like no could, yeah, that that makes me sick to my. Yeah. So those two phrases you never thought you'd see next to each other. <laughs> yeah, I I I'd like to think that that trend is dying down a bit now because um, the one positive thing I can say about the current Call of Duty is that Activision has abandoned the season pass for it. Oh and really? All the, I didn't all the even, stuff, well, all, all the stuff that they're going to add. I, I know it's not fashionable to say nice things about Activision at the minute, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, the one thing they have done with Call of Duty is, is they've said that all all of the stuff they're going to add to it is going to be free updates. Which really, is, so you're just you're sixty dollar buy-in now, and you have yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, which Good is for them. Super cool, super cool. Um, it it and it also gets around the problem of sort of fragmenting the player base that they've had with previous installments. And yeah, sure. So so that's really cool. And if if someone as big as Activision is going to lead the way in doing that, I I'd like to hope that other people will follow suit. But I mean, I'm not holding my breath yet. But it's it's well, a positive sign, I think. Uh, well, you know what? It's Activision, right? So they've yeah. probably seen how successful it was with Overwatch. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the good the goodwill surrounding Overwatch is tremendous. Mm-hmm. So imagine doing that with Call of Duty. Imagine yeah. not nickel and diming your fan base to death, and then getting them even more loyal. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like I don't play Overwatch because I don't like competitive first-person shooters. But when people ask me about a multiplayer game suggestion, that's usually my first go-to because it's yeah. not exploitative and it's a it's a business model I respect with a great deal of goodwill. Yeah. So. Even with the loot boxes, but because the loot boxes are cosmetic and not yeah. gameplay affecting, I don't have an issue with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I, I feel, I feel Halloween Mercy is uh, preying on a lot of people. <laughs> oh, I haven't. Is there a new? Is there a new Halloween Mercy I, costume? I, I, I think it's the same one, but I, I know people who spent. That's quite the a witch lot of, one, right? Yeah, I know but, people who spent quite a lot of money trying to get that. <laughs> I'm having, yeah, I'm having trouble with the demon. I don't know how to pronounce how they pronounce her name, Orissa. Yeah, uh, the the robot with the four yeah. legs, because she just looks like a monster from Doom, and I want it. <laughs> but but uh, I don't know why I want it because I wouldn't play it. I would just like yeah. log in. I would just like log in and like look at it on the characters. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Overwatch, the game yeah. I another game I wish was any other genre because yes. I love the ca- I love the character design so much. Yes. Oh well. I anyway. wish they would make an Overwatch 2D fighting game. Like maybe after Arc System Works is done with <laughs> <laughs> is done is done with um Ar- Grand Blue. <laughs> It'll be the team up of the century and I can play. <laughs> yeah. I I'd just be happy with like a single player. 90s style first person shooter where you could play as Overwatch characters. That'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah, just like arena style, like like a painkiller or yeah. a, or a yeah. Yeah, I would love that. I don't know. I love Overwatch. I want someone to make like an animated series or something just so I can engage with this world more mm. without yeah. feeling pressured to care about the game because I really do love these characters so much. Yeah. Yeah. 
And the, the interesting thing I, f- I find about Overwatch is that, like, playing the game, you don't really get to engage with the characters that much because there's no... Well, no, they're just... There's no sort of story or anything in the game. It's well, it's yeah. all in that external material. So I don't yeah, know. and it's, it's 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 goofy, right? Because like mm. Overwatch has this incredible mythos and these built characters, and it's just like yeah, there's good guys and bad guys, but that don't matter because like oh okay cool, I'm Reinhardt. Oh cool, like I'm supporting the guy who's Reinhardt's arch enemy, who's also yeah. on my team. Like it doesn't like <laughs> it's it's, yeah. it's dumb. It's cuckoo dum dum. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I don't like it, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's still beautiful. Anyway, so, Contra. <laughs> yeah, um, how about that? Yeah. Anything else you've been up to? Yes, so I've also been playing Hardcore Mecha, finally, because I know oh, I yes. mentioned it, like, a thousand yeah. times as, you know, as news snippets have been released throughout previous episodes. Um, and it's quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Hardcore Mecha was developed by a Chinese development team that goes by Rocket Punch. Mm-hmm. And it was essentially an attempt to recreate the old 2D mecha-style games from the Assault Suits Lanos series and yeah. um, and LucasArts Metal Warriors on the Super Nintendo. Yeah. Um, using just modern, you know, modern graphical techniques. Um, it uses that kind of, like flash style animation that i've been really down on in the past where everything Mm kind of looks like puppets with like independently moving limbs yeah but whereas i don't like that with people it turns out with robots it just makes them look like robots (laughs) yeah that makes sense so it actually translates very beautifully to a side scroller with giant robots Uh, it doesn't it doesn't look so great in the in the people levels because you can also get out of your mech Mm-hmm. And be and be a person, and there's like infiltration stages when you're just a person, like infiltrating a base. Yeah. So it's not it's not quite as beautiful with the people because it still looks wooden and and weird. But with the robots, it's beautiful because it's all the the arms and like the armor plating are like layered in individual moving parts. So there's just a really chunky mechanical look to the movement, and it's very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just it, it plays smoothly. You're you know uh, independent analog, uh, independent aiming on the analog. Uh, there's different weapons to pick up and collect. You earn points in each stage and can customize your mech. There's a you know there's a story with like characters who are you know just anime trope characters, but they're all pretty cool. Um, it's also a delight to play. Uh, I don't know if it's politically correct or not, but just the English is amazing. <laughs> it's an it's a English version. It's an English language version, and it's yeah. like, have you complete done the mission? <laughs> like it's just like every, like all the dialogue is amazing. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Uh, yeah. Love it. So, so I mean, I, I I'm only about maybe five stages deep into it, but it's it's just a really delicious example of what it is it's just a mm-hmm. really finely made side scroller that for if and if you're a giant robot fan just like the designs are beautiful and the, the weapons feel chunky and the, the combat satisfying so it's i just can't recommend it enough and it's a budget price game even like the physical copy is like 29.99 on play asia it's like oh, not expen- cool. it's not yeah. expensive it's- very nice very nice all right. Anything else? Uh, that's the only stuff really worth talking about. I, I managed to snag Katamari Reroll finally oh, yeah. on the yeah. Switch, and that, that's been good. But I don't need to pay lip service to Katamari. The legend tells itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Um, my turn then. I guess I've only really been playing one thing recently because it's it's sort of both captured my attention and I've been wanting to sort of be comprehensive about it as well which is uh gun gun pixies which i've just written about over on moegamer.net you can find my feature on there from friday 
um, if you want to take a look at it. So I, I'll try not to repeat too much of the stuff I've said in that feature, but I, I found this a really interesting game. Um, not because it's necessarily a brilliant game, but because it's a good example of uh, a Japanese developer being a bit experimental and sort of using the, the, the presentational and mechanical conventions of a genre in service of allowing you to get between different story beats so it's 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 marketed as a third person shooter but it's it's not a third person shooter it's a visual novel uh, let's make no mistake about that um but what the what the actual sort of gameplay segments of that game allow you to do is to more directly engage with the world in which this this story is taking place and because you're you're such a tiny character in this game, you can sort of look look at all sorts of things right up close, and you can sort of find little fine details and stuff. And although the from a technical perspective, the the, the graphics themselves aren't sort of the most detailed things you'll ever see. There there is a lot of sort of subtle characterization and world building details built into these levels as you explore around the place. So you you'll do things like you'll sort of you'll find dvd cases and stuff around the place and they're from various series and as time passes and the missions go on you'll find those dvd cases in different different places in the room suggesting that they've been watched or you might find them in someone else's room which means that they've sort of lo loaned them to someone else and that sort of thing and it's j just full of little touches like that that kind of make the whole thing feel a lot more alive there's there's a very sort of well realized kind of backstory that they don't talk about a huge amount so there's there's like an anime that they're all into that sort of gets mentioned in passing quite a lot but there's lots of sort of merchandise of it lying around the place and one character's got all the dvds for it and another one is making a fan game for it and they play that in one of their story scenes and stuff like that so it's just a, a really well realized tiny little world that you can you can sort of be part of and the the, the way the story in that is presented as you being these characters that are witnessing everything going on from the outside because you're you're not supposed to be seen or you're not supposed to be seen as influencing anything that's going on it provides a really interesting perspective on the story so it's not quite third person um in terms of narrative perspective because you do do things that influence the stories you go on um but it's it's not quite sort of it's not quite you're directly involved in it as well it's not a story that is about the two main playable characters it's a story about these giant girls that they're observing and the various things that they go through and sort of the the various personal issues they have and sort of there's it explores all sorts of mental health issues and uh self-esteem and all that sort of thing and it's just a really nice game that it doesn't get too negative at any point it deals with stuff like depression and anxiety and stuff like that but it doesn't do it in a way that a lot of games do where it's sort of everything feels bleak and hopeless it, it, it does mm. it from the perspective of like yeah sometimes people feel like this sometimes people need help with this and sometimes sometimes they can get help sometimes they can't get help sometimes they are feel able to ask for help sometimes they need a little nudge in the right direction and it's ultimately it sort of has a really nice positive message about the whole thing and i i, I really like that aspect of it and so like i said in my article it's, it's not something that i necessarily recommend to to everyone because because the the sort of gameplay side of things is so de-emphasized in favor of it just being a world that you're a part of and experiencing the story and so on it's not something you should go into expecting a good third person shooter because although it's perfectly competent at what it does it's 
that side of things isn't amazing but that side of things is also not the main point of it and i just found that really interesting and perfectly in keeping with what idea factory and compile heart do and very much in keeping with what shade do as well sort of right from their quintet days and onwards into other things they sort of experimented with doing things very differently from the norm and kind of looking at what people assume a video game is supposed to be and then experimenting with doing different things to that and yeah i just found the whole experience really 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 cool so um i have been going through and trying to get all the endings for that i think i've got two more left to do on that um and then i'm going to be moving on to bullet girls fantasia which i haven't tried at all yet but i'm very interested to try and sort of uh, compare and contrast with how that does things because i think that one does put a bit more of an emphasis on on sort of the gameplay and the uh, the gunplay side of things in that so i'm interested to see how that goes yeah i think Uh, that one might be for me so i'm really interested hmm. to hear more about because if yes. you could sell me on that one, I've been on the fence about ordering a copy of that for a long time. Because mm-hmm. I think that's more of just like a... Because of its handheld roots, I think it does have more of a stronger emphasis on just short like short playable missions and like loot grinding, basically. Yes, yes, yes. That's that's what I understand of it as well. But like I say, I, I haven't touched it at all yet. So I'll be jumping into that this week. So I'll, I'll have a bit more to, to say about that in the near future. Um, so that so that's the main thing i've been playing uh, another thing i wanted to just just pay a bit of a bit of lip service to is the um the uh two new sega ages releases on switch oh yes uh which i i picked up both of because they're i mean they're like a five reach and i i don't have a problem with playing that um so the two most recent releases at the time of recording are ichidant r and columns two uh neither of which i played before i've played ichidant r's predecessor tant r before which is part of the sega ages collection on playstation 2 um if you're not familiar with that it's a spin-off of bonanza brothers that kind of takes um an almost point blank like approach to puzzle gaming um so rather than being a light gun shooter with lots of mini games it's it's just a a one or two player game where you play through a bunch of mini games in in the name of sort of making overall progress through the the main game structure and it's it's a lot of fun it's because there's lots of different it calls some puzzles but there's all sorts of different kind of skill challenges in there so some of them will test your observation skills some of them test your memory some of them test your reflexes and there's a really cool mix of different stuff going on in there so that's a lot of fun i haven't had the chance to to play it with other people yet but um yeah it it, that's the sort of thing that i can see being really fun with even just one other person um, the interesting thing about the Sega Ages release is that they include both the arcade version and the Mega Drive version. Mm. Um, they they haven't localized the Mega Drive version, unfortunately, because that only came out in Japan originally. So it's just a straight port of the original Japanese version, which means all the text is in Japanese. But um, in that version, you can you can you can play with up to four people um, for one thing, which is something you couldn't do in the arcade version. The arcade version was just two people. And there's also um, a full uh, sort of RPG style mode in it as well. What? Yeah, um, which is, is, is bizarre. So yeah, there's there's a full on sort of top down RPG in this where all of the battles that you do are just itchy down harmony games. And that sounds awesome. It, it's it's very cool. Uh, I mean, like it, it's difficult to get to get the most out of because all of the text is in Japanese, but you can you can sort of enjoy it on a surface level with sort of exploring this top-down overworld and getting into fights and doing these mini games and stuff like that and it's just a really cool idea and it's just a good a good example of um sort of various ways that arcade ports were handled back in the 16-bit era so there was there was a feeling that 
for a while anyway that sort of arcade ports needed to have this sort of added value to them as well and sort of yeah. that's that's where these whole extra modes came from and i i, I kind of miss that with sort of modern arcade ports because although we can get kind of arcade perfect experiences these days sort of those extra modes often tend to fall a bit by the wayside uh, which is a bit of a shame but um yeah itchy don't know is a good reminder of that which is neat and it's it's just a fun game as well um columns 2 uh, i found really interesting as well because this is not a game i've played before because it uh, did not get a home port so there was the original columns on mega drive and game gear and then they went straight to columns 3 they skipped columns 2 um i didn't know why they'd done that uh, until i played columns 2 and it absolutely <laughs> absolutely butt blasted me within about five minutes of starting it um, because Col- Columns 2 is Columns, but incredibly difficult. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I just I just find Columns 2 fascinating because it's it's the same mechanics as the original Columns, but just the atmosphere of it is so different. This is a game that, whereas the original Columns was like, hey, come in, have some fun, let's drop some gems, let's listen to some cool, chilled-out music and stuff like this. Whereas Columns 2 is like, drop the gems, drop them now, match them now, match them now, get on with it, get on with it, get on with it. Oh, you failed. <laughs> <laughs> I find regular Columns stressful enough. So, like, when you were telling me that this is, like, a more aggressive Columns, I was like, heaven help me. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like, I don't know why I find columns so stressful, but I really yeah. do. But it's it's just fascinating, because it, 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 like, gets you right in there. It's like, the, the, the music in the original columns is all, like, sort of very chilled out classical style music. But in this one, you've got this sort of pounding, raging FM soundtrack with you know, sort of howling guitars and stuff like that. And it's just incredibly energetic. Like, the overall pace of the game is much higher. And it's... It, it's... I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of hard not to walk away from columns feeling like you've just been abused by someone, but <laughs> <laughs> which is something we're all looking for in a video game. <laughs> but I don't know. I I, I kind of enjoy the experience just because it, it's so it's so unashamed to challenge the player. It's so unashamed that right, okay, you've played columns, so you got quite good at columns, so now try this. And that was that was sort of a common approach to sequels for a, a particular period of time, which was to to sort of provide the the same but more all the same but for more advanced players and it's sort of where where things like the original japanese version of super mario brothers 2 came from and that sort sure, of thing sure um which also it's just didn't a, get localized because everyone it, thought it was too hard exactly exactly so and it's it's just an interesting thing to me because i mean when we think about sequels these days people expect something to be significantly different in most cases i mean we don't always get that but people people expect things to be significantly different whereas really all that's different in columns two is just the atmosphere and the attitude of the whole thing but that gives it such a surprisingly different feel to the original yeah it's 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 just a fascinating game to me fascinating game um that uh, yeah anytime i'm feeling particularly masochistic i will just boot up and uh, let it kick my ass for a bit <laughs> <laughs> there are 70 levels i've made it to level five oh. <laughs> yeah as we've discussed in our puzzle episode, there's just there's something I find incredibly soothing. Like I'm not a huge YouTube like let's play guy, but I love watching a master of a puzzle game just like oh, burn yeah. through an entire puzzle game. Yeah, like I yeah. will sit down and watch a video like that for like two hours of just like a guy like nuking Cleopatra Fortune or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like it's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. It'd be interesting to see someone someone doing this because it's. 
yeah, it's something you really need to pay attention to and react to because it's, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult, but enjoyable. Enjoyable. If you if you fancy your chances at puzzle games, then yeah, check Columns Two out. Um, it does it does come with Columns One as well. Um, so if Columns Two is a bit too much for you to begin with, you can just play the the arcade mode of Columns One and admire the the simplicity and relaxing nature of it, and then go back to Columns Two and think, why did I do this? <laughs> Ah, uh, right. I think that's everything from me for now. So let's take another short break and then we'll get into our main topic of the day. So we'll see you in just a moment. Welcome back. For our main topic of today, we are going to talk a bit about video pinball. So rather than uh, sort of actual pinball, this is the sort of pinball that's been specifically designed to be on computers and consoles. So um, we've both got sort of uh, varying amounts of experience with this from over the years. So um, we're going to sort of hop around through time, I think, and sort of uh, work our way from the earliest stuff, which is where most of my experience lies, up until sort of... I guess what was kind of a golden age of it in kind of the the, the sort of around the 16-bit era and so on and then there's a couple of sort of more recent things we can talk about as well so um I will kick off then with um sort of I think the earliest examples of video pinball that I encountered was just video pinball on the Atari 2600 okay uh, which I which I didn't play back in the day, uh, but I have uh, developed a, b a bit of experience with since because it, it's been on all of those uh, sort of Atari Flashback Classics collections and so on. Um, I discovered while doing a bit of research for this today that this was actually um, an evolution of some earlier standalone hardware that Atari did. Oh, okay. So, along with um, all of uh, sort of the, the 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 kind of pong on a chip machines that they used to do sure uh, they actually they actually did a video pinball machine as well which uh, oh, actually like had had it had flipper buttons on the side and everything and and that sort of thing you just hooked it up to your TV and you could play pinball with it uh, and there was also it also had breakout and basketball on there as well so it had a paddle controller on it as well that you could play those with okay um so yeah I didn't know that existed until uh, until today in fact so that was uh, quite cool to find out but anyway video pinball on the uh, 2600 was uh, designed to be as with most early 2600 games it was kind of a fairly loose simulation of something that you might have experienced somewhere else so um there were certain things it had to sort of deliberately limit so the main thing being that because most pinball machines are kind of vertically oriented they're sort of long and thin whereas tvs are the other way around they're landscape oriented uh, you had you had sort of a a fairly squat play field that just filled the screen it didn't scroll or anything you just had a screen that you could bounce the ball around and so on and the table itself was very simple as well it just had some things that you could roll the ball over and some bumpers and that sort of thing and it was it was pretty much just play until you get bored basically mm -hmm. um so and I mean, it's it's quite fun though. If if you if you just like the experience of just sort of sort of watching numbers go up <laughs> while listening to bleeps and bloop sounds, which is Turn, turns sort of, out at its heart, that's what I like the most in my entire life. Indeed, so, indeed. I remember, and I mean that that 
<laughs> I remember like some of like the critics like when Final remember when Final Fantasy 13 came out and like everyone was too busy trying to figure out why it wasn't a good ge- why it wasn't a good game and and they, mm-hmm. no one paid attention to why it was and like one of the, I remember one of like the criticisms that like made me laugh the most was like was like someone was just like this is just like the worst things about an RPG like extrapolated to an extreme degree it's just watching l- larger and larger numbers appearing over things heads and i was like if you like video games <laughs> and you don't like watching numbers get larger and larger <laughs> like why are you playing like what like yeah. what video games do you like then like what is it yeah. you like about video games <laughs> yeah it's true and and like the the, the 2600 era if if you boil stuff down most of them were down to getting numbers as high as you could before a time expired or before you fucked up too many times score chasing that's what gaming at its basis level is yeah exactly i i I did find it quite interesting that um if you look at the original manual for video pinball uh, which which is included with the atari flashback classics collections um the the way they position this game in the introduction is is just great so I'll, i'll just read this to you so it says how many of you out there have always longed to be a pinball wizard it's a good bet that some of the places you had to go to play a game of pinball weren't the most comfortable for you well relax since you are wise enough to invest in this atari registered trademark video pinball tm game program tm you'll never have to worry about being at places with that kind of unsavory atmosphere again oh yeah those unsavory pinball halls (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's crazy um so so yeah this was sort of it's sort of positioned as a way to get something vaguely approximating pinball in your home and there's just a lovely picture of of like it looks like a middle-aged dude sitting in an armchair in front of a very small tv uh and sort of sort of going yes never leave the house again (laughs) exactly exactly yeah fantastic so yeah i mean video pinball is is by no means sort of the greatest pinball game of all time but it was also one of the first adaptations of pinball to a video game system as well so it's worth taking a look at um similarly um one that i'm very fond of uh but which is similarly loose and simple uh with its simulation of of pinball is um uh, a game called either Flipper Game, if you're in Europe, or Thunderball, with an exclamation mark, if you're in the US. So this oh, okay. was for the Philips G7000 Video Pack computer in Europe, or the Magnavox Odyssey 2 in the States. And this also came out in 1980. Um, so this this really kind of emphasised the video aspect of it. So it had a very, very abstract play field. That d- it didn't really look like a pinball table. It was just sort of a big black screen and there were sort of squares and circles around the place and you'd bounce the ball off them and they change color and they'd make nice satisfying bleepy bloopy noises and your score would go up and you could build up a, a bonus meter and so on and that was it that was that was all it was it was just a game about hitting the ball and hitting other things and making numbers go up again and it was it was fun and it was because it was so simple it's also a game that my whole family enjoyed um as well so like my, neither of my parents are particularly big video gamers but they they would both happily play this game because all you need to do is press the button yeah you, you can't you can move the joystick left and right to move the flippers slightly left and right for no apparent reason but um yeah at its core all you need to do in this game is just press the fire button to hit the flippers that's and um, you, that's something i wanted to cover too i think actually the first note on my kind of discussion notes for today was that like video pinball specifically has like a really dear spot in my heart to me because i mean i think something i struggle with and a lot of like game fans struggle with sometimes is like the legitimacy of the hobby right and like i i always i always felt growing up as a kid that like video pinball games were like somehow more legitimate than other video games because Mm -hmm. pinball itself has such a broad appeal 
Yeah. Um, like, um, you know, because pinball is a physical thing, not necessarily a video game. And like, I knew people who loved pinball who didn't like video games. So yeah, video yeah. pinball was always something I could be like, well, I know you don't really like video games, but how about this? And mm-hmm. so like, and like very specifically, like my, my dad loved pinball and it was something we would bond over together. Like I remember there was a sandwich shop down the street from my house that always had like two or three pinball machines. They were always cycling them out for different ones. And my dad and I like maybe like every other week would go get like hoagies and french fries there for like dinner after work on yeah. friday and like we would always bring a pocket full of quarters and play a couple rounds of pinball while the sandwiches were getting mm-hmm. ready so yeah. like pinball was always something like i bonded with my dad about so like when video yeah. pinball became part of my life like those were the games i could get my dad to play with me yeah yeah so like it always yeah. has been important to me yeah because, because of that uh, because of the broad accessibility of pinball mm-hmm yeah, definitely, and th- this was very much the case with uh, with Flipper as well. So, y- you c- you could play this with up to four people in a sort of take it in turns mode, and it would just sort of cycle the colours around to show whose turn it was, and that sort of thing. You could and you could compete against each other in that way. So, very simple game, not terribly varied, not a lot of depth to it, but the whole thing also fit on a two K cartridge, so you can't really complain too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So next one I want to mention is is actually one that again I've only come to for the first time recently, but uh, during a bit of research, it's definitely worth mentioning. Um, this was a game called Rasta Blaster by Bill Budge, um, developed in 1981. Um, this wasn't the first home computer pinball game, but it's it's one of the most well known ones uh, okay. from the early days of the era. So this was originally developed for Apple II and then was later ported to Atari 8-bit and it was an adaptation of a real life pinball table by Williams called Firepower. Um, the fact it was on Apple II is interesting because the, the Apple II was not a computer that was particularly good at um, games that moved quickly so it wasn't very good for arcade games it didn't have hardware scrolling it didn't have sort of sprite handling and that sort of thing so actually getting getting that stuff working on an Apple II was quite a technical achievement so um, but Bill Budge he, he he sort of set a challenge to himself to get fast animation and collision detection working on the Apple II uh, and prove that those things were possible on a platform that had sort of not been regarded as quite up to the job in those departments and yeah, this this was a good, fun pinball game and pretty typical of stuff in the early 8-bit home microcomputer era. Um, it's also noteworthy for an, another reason, which is that um, this game was, I think it was self-published by Bill Budge originally, but um, it attracted the attention of uh, Trip Hawkins, who is the founder of EA, and he was so impressed by Raster Blaster that he he recruited Bill Budge as one of the first batch of developers for EA, who was also formed in 1981. And uh, Bill Budge then later went on to develop a product called Pinball Construction Set for EA, which was one of EA's most massive successes in its early um, in its early years. So um, by massive success in the early to mid 80s, I mean 300,000 copies, which sounds quite laughable these days. But when you consider how few people sort of could afford or wanted or understood home computers in the early 80s 
that's pretty spectacular this was this was across mm-hmm. five different platforms including uh, i think apple II again uh commodore 64 atari 8-bit and then some other ones as well uh, this was back when ea also did their really cool kind of record sleeve type um game packaging as well oh. where they sort they sort of really treated their their developers almost like rock stars so like you'd have this kind of gatefold almost like a vinyl case that the the discs and stuff came in and they'd be like sort of photographs of like the programmers standing and posing wearing sunglasses in space and that sort of thing and it was it was just awesome it's just an awesome awesome era certainly a far cry from the modern ea but um it was it was a good example of where their original name came from where electronic arts came from so at that time they very much believed that the people who were making video games the people who were talented at creating stuff like this they were artists as as much as they were sort of technical professionals and sort of very skilled with that sort of thing they were they were artists to them at the time and it's yeah it's, it seems it feels strange to sort of say that today when you think about what ea is today but i don't know what yeah. ea is today you, you said like yeah. as opposed to like i can't like look like the sports games but like what has ea made in recent history like do they even I, exist anymore what is ea they've been very quiet haven't they i, 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 I was just i was I was just thinking about this the other day when someone was complaining about Activision and, and that sort of thing, and then someone brought up EA, and everyone was like, what? I Who? can't even complain. <laughs> like, normally I'd be like, oh, EA, fuck EA, but I can't, like, are they still, do they still own Star Wars? Are they still making that so. new Star Wars game? I think game? so. I think they've got, the, they've got that new Star Wars game coming out, and I think that's that's the only thing I can really And, like, Battlefield, but there hasn't been a new Battlefield. Like, what, like, what is EA? Like, I, yeah. Oh, my God, have they become irrelevant? Yeah. Fan- Weird. <laughs> So weird. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, I can't think of a time in like the past five years where I couldn't think of something to be angry at EA about, but <laughs> but like I can't even think of something to be mad about them. Yeah, mad at them. About. Yeah, <laughs> no. it's, it's it's either that or other people have done stuff that's just even more stupid than what they do. But <laughs> Bethesda. no, I I, I I think I think you're right. They've just kept their head down for the last sort of couple of years or so and just quietly released the stuff that they that, release every year, like FIFA and that lot. That Star Wars Battlefield debacle destroyed them. Yeah, like yeah. I mean, that didn't destroy and them they, financially, but like from a PR, like they just shriveled up like a testicle in the Arctic after. <laughs> after that whole thing well there's there's that and the the heavy amount of scrutiny that uh fifa in particular has come under oh. because there's 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 been a lot of news stories about uh kids getting hold of their parents credit cards and spending astronomical amounts of money on that ultimate team mode is that in um, your neck of the woods where people care about quote football end quote yes because yes. <laughs> Because no one gives a shit about FIFA and the. <laughs> no, no, no. But but no, that that has been. It's certainly been depicted as a real problem over here. I, I don't know how widespread the this the, the problem is, but certainly um, with with all the sort of legal discussions over loot boxes and stuff like that, FIFA has been kind of a, a leading part of those discussions because that's been a series that's really been champion championing the use of. They're, they're not loot boxes in the case of FIFA, but it's the same. Beca- Sorry, surprise mechanics. Oh. Um, <laughs> they really know how to dress that turd up, don't they? Yeah. Um, Gifts you yeah. pay for. Uh, uh, anyway, anyway, um, Raster Blaster. Uh, one of the one of the first one of the first. No, this wasn't one of the first EA games, but it it got someone a job at EA originally. Which is cool. Um, moving on to the next year, uh, there's a game that I do remember playing back in the day called David's Midnight Magic. Oh, uh, which was I can go released anyway. by <laughs> just, any number this of was directions. Released, 
This was released by Broderbund in 1982, and this was another game that was based on a real-life pinball table. So this was based on uh, another Williams table called Black Knight. Uh, okay. um, and it was called it was called David's Midnight Magic uh, because the guy who created it was called David Snyder, um, and it was very, very well regarded at the time as uh, one of the more sort of realistic pinball simulation so it, it had a pinball table that was laid out very much like a real pinball table with bumpers and, and flippers and spinners and all that sort of thing um it was presented well uh it played well it was uh, as authentically difficult as a real pinball table so literally if you if you twang the plunger at the beginning at the wrong degree it will just fall straight down the drain immediately without you having any opportunity to hit it so in that sense it's very much like real pinball certainly when i'm playing um but yeah this this was this was very well regarded back in its day it had an, an initial um black and white release and was then later re-released um in a color version and then atari re-released it a third time um towards the end of the atari 8-bits life when they brought out uh what they called the xegs the xe game system uh which was an attempt to follow up um things like the 5200 and the 7800 it was it it was an Atari 8-bit that you could use as a console, basically. So it still had a, a keyboard and stuff you could attach to it. But the main processor and all that sort of thing were in a console. And they re-released a bunch of classic games from throughout the Atari 8-bit's history on cartridge for that platform. And so David's Midnight Magic was one of those games that got re-released in about 1987 or so. Um, so it, it, it kind of had two opportunities to spend some time in the limelight and it's it was it was well regarded both in 1982 when it first came out and again in 1987 when it got re-released so it's got a lot of a lot of staying power and people who are still into atari these days still like it very much um another one that people really like these days is called night mission pinball um which is from a company called sublogic this was another 1982 release um and this was developed by a guy called bruce artwick um uh, who is probably most well known today as the creator of the flight simulator series um so he he went on to create what would become microsoft flight simulator um and in keeping with what he did with microsoft flight simulator or or just flight simulator as it was named back then um night mission was designed to be as accurate a simulation of pinball as possible given the time period and the technology available to him so you've got this immensely detailed play field using the um again on the atari 8-bit version it was using the high resolution graphics mode which is 320 by 200 um <laughs> super high res um but the the interesting thing i find about this is that um as well as sort of providing a kind of accurate physics simulation on the screen as much as was possible with the tech of the time is that it also was one of the only games to attempt to recreate the physical side of pinball um so it made use of the computer console itself and the paddle controllers to simulate playing on a pinball table so to sort of play this optimally you needed to connect two paddle controllers to your computer and you'd put one on the left of the computer and one on the right of the computer and the fire buttons were on the side of the paddle controllers what? so you'd have them there just like real flipper buttons um and then you could also tilt the machine in the game by just hammering on any of the keys on either side of the keyboard so if you just bash the left side of the keyboard, you tilt the table one way. If you bash the keys on the other side of the keyboard, it would tilt the table the other way. That's incredible. And, yeah. Um, and then just to add to that as well, the earliest models of the Atari 8-bit, the 400 and 800, uh, as well as being able to output sound to the television, uh, they also had an internal sound chip. 
Okay. And he took he took the decision to rather than output the sound from Night Mission Pinball to the television, he made the sound come out of the computer console. So again, that was sort of further adding to the physicality of this game and creating the feeling of you actually sort of playing a pinball machine. Um and it's yeah, it's it's just a fascinating idea, really. Just 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 the way that he thought about making this as authentic a simulation not just on the television screen but in terms of how you interact with it as well and as such this is sort of still regarded as one of the best pinball games in this very early period in the early 80s so it's it's a fascinating game it's actually quite hard to emulate authentically because um obviously you don't have the internal speaker of the original things um you need sort of two controllers to be able to get something vaguely like that original experience so this is one of those games that it really does benefit from having the original hardware available to be able to experience it as intended Hmm. and yeah that's that's just a fascinating one so um those were sort of stuff that i've either come into contact with um sort of recently or experienced back in the day from the early days next one i got my list is sort of is sort of jumping forward a few years which is a game called time scanner by sega uh, and this came out in 1987, uh, which is sort of more approaching your kind of era of things, I think, for yeah. the things you want to talk about. Do you, do you remember Time Scanner at all? No. Was it released on any home consoles? Yes. Yes. But um, it was it was one of those games that it was an arcade game originally, um, but the it didn't get ported to any consoles, I don't think. It got ported to the home computer platforms that were popular in Europe. Okay. So it got released on... Well, I was on, three. So, mm. so I brought... Fair enough. <laughs> I don't have any experience with time scan. I was not in the arcades at that at that time. Uh, that's that's fair enough. I I, I mean, so some of the stuff I've already talked about, I was like one and two when that came out as well. But but a lot of those games on the early computer platforms remained relevant for a long time. Yeah. So I, I came to them a lot later. Time scanner. I do remember when it was current. Um, and it was the first time I remember seeing a distinction between made between. Um, an attempt to simulate pinball uh so an attempt to simulate real pinball and a video pinball game um so this this if, if you're not familiar with time scanner this was a game designed for the arcade to be a pinball game rather than a pinball table so um there were, it, it, it it wasn't originally a pinball table that got adapted to a video game it was designed from the outset to be a video game so it was uh, running on sega's um 16-bit system 16 hardware i think What's it called? Something like that. Anyway, so it's sort of they're, they're early 16-bit hardware, so it's got sort of lovely pixel art graphics and so on. Um, and the concept is that you play across these various different tables that are based on different time periods, and you can sort of whack the ball into um, into holes to travel through time. And so, sort of like you start in sort of prehistoric times when there's a volcano erupting in the background, you can knock it forward into the future or knock it back into other time periods and so on. Um, and so this this was sort of the first example of what i think of as modern video pinball which is where you take the mechanics of pinball and you create something that would be physically impossible to do on an actual table yes and that's what um, i want to focus on mostly yes yeah. <laughs> so so that's that's very much going to be going to be something we're going to come on to a bit more before we do that i just want to um share a little story about how i first encountered this so i didn't actually play this back in the day uh but i remember seeing it in a magazine that we had over in this country called ace magazine uh, which stood for advanced computer entertainment oh, um well it's advanced so, so, so this this was a, a multi-format magazine that i used to like very much um and it's it sort of positioned itself as um 
sort of they they didn't just look at games and like yay games but they were sort of looking a bit more into sort of interviewing developers and finding a bit more about their tech behind things and so on so it always struck me as sort of um I don't know, kind of, a, kind of a more mature take on games magazines at the time, which was which was interesting. But they also got a bit experimental with some of the stuff they uh, mounted on the cover of the magazine. So, and one issue, uh, I have very vivid memories of this. I don't, I don't know why I have such vivid memories of this. But one issue, they had a cover-mounted cassette uh, called Radio Ace, which was um, on the first side of that. It was just a very dry tutorial of someone with too much reverb on their voice talking about how you use MIDI to make music on your home computer. <laughs> uh, but but on the second side, it was um, clearly one of the magazine staffers trying to be a radio host. And one of the main things he was doing as part of this Radio Ace show was um, uh, playing some sound effects and music from the games that they'd reviewed that issue. Uh, this, this was 1987 remember so so relatively primitive sounds in most cases so like the first thing on the first side of the of the tape was someone playing crystal quest on the mac um and then they had sort of the, the a competition where you had to identify the sounds and literally one of the one of the games you had to identify the sounds of which is literally just just it's just like oh yeah whatever but the the thing that really sticks in my mind from this was um the sounds of the amiga version of time scanner oh. where where activision took it upon themselves to uh create um a bit of a bit of a bit of wonderfully late 80s sort of digital music and so the majority of this sort of clip of music from time scanner was not during actual gameplay but it was just the intro sequence which is just a guy going time scanner time scanner time scanner over and over for a couple of minutes and that's kind of my enduring memory of that game um how could it not be but i've I've since played it recently and the arcade version is a lot of fun the arcade version is really fun so it's 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 worth emulating if you get the opportunity to do that Uh, it did get ported to amiga atari st amstrad cpc commodore 64 and zx spectrum by activision Uh, those home ports are hot garbage don't play them (laughs) um (laughs) so i i tried the st version and the, the physics are so bad they are awful it is unplayable um but the 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 arcade original is is really fun so um do give that a go um yeah so like i mentioned with that sort of the main interesting thing about time scanner is that it was doing things that you couldn't do with a real pinball machine uh which is sort of probably the most interesting thing about video pinball as it exists today um which I think is probably a good uh, good segue into some of the things you want to talk about. So yeah, go nuts. Yeah, for sure. So I mean, that, that's basically the thing I love most about video pinball. And so there's there's kind of three different... I have three different kind of categories that I conceptualize video pinball in, right? It's like mm-hmm. there's the video pinball games that clearly are trying to be pinball. Just yeah. like emulate the experience of pinball. Uh, a realistic pinball table then there's then there's side b which is video pinball that is still clearly trying to be pinball but abstracting it with mechanics physicalities and presentations that would be impossible in the real world yes um things like times that time scanner is a great example it was it was doing things that weren't real real for it wouldn't be capable for a pinball table to do but it was still trying to be pinball tables 
Yes. And yes. then there's games that are trying to just not really be real pinball at all, but are creating game experiences using the mechanics of pinball. Yes. So it's kind of three steps, uh, like how far away we get from the abstraction of a real pinball table. So I kind of have a couple different examples of each kind of thing. Um, starting with the Nintendo, um, there, mm-hmm. there, there were three main, I think most people will say three main games that are kind of standouts on the Nintendo, the, the original 8-bit NES. Um, the first of which being, of course, Pinball. Like, the actual mm-hmm. Nintendo-published pinball, which was just part mm-hmm. of those early Nintendo-published first-party games that had that very specific black label. Like, you know what I'm talking yeah. about, right? Like, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, na- yeah. the name of the game was just straight-up what it was. Tennis. Pinball. <laughs> like, that's it. It was just, it was just Nintendo make, trying their best to make an 8-bit pinball table playable on the NES. And it was a good, serviceable, fun game um, with a little bit of Nintendo twist in there. Um, then there was also, there's Pinbot, which, um, in the similar, uh, vein of, what was that, like, Dave's Midnight Magic or whatever, it was an, it was an attempt to recreate a very popular, uh, real-life table, which was the Pinbot table, which for some reason was just a, a pinball table people knew by name in that era, yeah. and adapt that to, uh, uh, the digital field, and what was interesting about Pinbot was it had a very... Um, it had a skewed, canted uh, camera presentation where the table was actually using perspective. Okay, um, yep. So that was interesting because a lot of digital pinball at the time was just kind of um, a direct top-down translation of that table. But Yes, but, all the ones I've mentioned so far were like that. Yes, yeah, like, but Pinbot had a bit of uh, vanishing point perspective. Um, so it kind of felt like... It wasn't just trying to recreate a pinball table digitally, but actually recreate the experience of playing a real pinball table. Does does that make? Am I being clear about yeah. that distinction? Like, yeah. Not yeah, just this sense. is a digital pinball, but like we've literally translated the table onto your screen because yes. it it was very slight. It wasn't an extreme amount of vanishing point, but there was a canted angle to it, which was very mm-hmm. very different from other other titles at the time. Um, also it had a delightfully garish color scheme of just like neon purple and pink everywhere and blues and just, just, just neon upon neon, like so eighties it hurt. Um, so that was one I always think of. Um, I remember renting it all the time as a kid, um, because I was obsessed with robots and still am to this day. Um, also, uh, I think the big one that a lot of like NES fans remember is Pinball Quest. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever play Pinball Quest? I didn't. I... Uh, no. So Pinball Quest was interesting because it had it was kind of a game with two components. So uh, it was a classic pinball game with that very you know rectangular recreated overhead pinball style uh and it just had traditional tables the the one i think that stands out most for me was the circus one it had a circus theme um but 
there was a second component to Pinball Quest, which was the titular Pinball Quest. Mm-hmm. And this was the first game that I can think of in my memory. I mean, there may have been ones before, but this is the first one I have personal experience of with doing what uh, part three uh, of my mm-hmm. of, of my three tier pinball game structure, which was creating a different kind of game using pinball mechanics. Yeah. So, so Pinball Quest was an attempt to make a large adventure in a in a in a world where your primary means of engaging with that world was pinball. Mm-hmm. So, Pinball Quest put monsters on the pinball table that you had to kill. And you would actually... There were areas and zones that you had to transition through. Like, there was an actual adventure here. A world to navigate. But your way of doing so was with a pinball and flippers. Yeah. And this, at the time, for me, was just, like, mind-blowing. Because we could create a... Now we had an experience... Which wasn't just making numbers go up, which was all pinball ever had been to me at that point, right? It was like, see how long you can survive to hit a high score. But yeah. he, but here we had an experience where there were goals and achievables within that world. Some of them exploratory, yeah. some of them competitive, taking enemies out. I had never, never encountered that before. The idea that there'd be little monsters walking back and forth on the table it's, uh, was unheard of to me. Um And this was the first time I was like, oh, pinball can be more. Mm. Uh, Thanks to it being a video game. So so Pinball Quest was really my first experience with that. Yeah, this looks really cool. I've not come across this before. This is a Jalico Jalico one, interestingly. Mm -hmm. We talked a bit about Jalico uh, a few times recently. Yeah, And and how nobody seems to remember them, but yet whenever we think of something cool and innovative, they're always there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jalico was really cool. Um, so, um, the next thing on my list is probably going to be the biggest, most enthusiastic part of this discussion, which I'm sure everyone's waiting for, Naxat Crush Pinball. <laughs> the Perhaps the most legendary of all digital pinball, especially for fans of Japanese gaming. Yeah. Um, so, Naxat Crush Pinball is a series of pinball games... Um, with very heavy thematic elements, um, and there and Naxat Crush Pinball very much is kind of the shining example of type two of my pinball concept table, which is games that are very clearly still trying to be a pinball table, but full of gimmicks and occurrences and physics and happenings that were just, that are just impossible on a real pinball table um and they do that by making the pinball table itself just not an actual pinball table um mm-hmm. or the things on the pinball table traditional pinball structures bumpers and ramps and things obscuring them as part of the theme that they are they just wholly commit so, you know, when you think about a themed pinball table, right, it's like, oh, this pinball table has a medieval theme. There's pictures of knights on it. And there's, pic- yeah. and, and like some of the bumpers maybe look like a dragon's head. But like, um, there's still like metal rails and like things lighting up everywhere. But like, Alien Crush Pinball just made the entire thing inside a giant 
an Alien Crush from 1988 is the first of the Naxxet Crush pinball games. It made, it took this to a degree that was insane by obscuring the entire table dedicated to that theme. So everything on that table is just a bizarre alien life form. Like the entire table is alive and like, like, yeah. like the, the, like the, um, the spring that fires your ball is this like terrifying like alien anus that like stretches down and like <laughs> and like like stretches up and like vomits the ball out and this like biological like everything's horrible and like the the little like bumpers on the side next to the um next to the flippers are just these like throbby membranes with like veins in them and like if they if you hit them too much you get to real oh they they were egg sacs and then like they <laughs> then like they burst and like little like spiders go like skittering across the stage and it's just like this whole dedication to making the pinball table something more making the pinball table like a living breathing world where there were hazards and gimmicks on the the table were characters in their own unique way um and then it took this further by tying challenges to bonus and boss stages that like you if you reach certain score milestones you would go to a whole different mini table that would have a boss monster like traipsing around that you had to like take down um and i had never really encountered anything like this before yeah, uh, the music is insane. It's just when we talk, you know, about kind of the mar like like the best games are an appropriate marriage of visual presentation, an artistic presentation, and music, and just complete package with good physics and good gameplay. Like Naxxat Crush Pinball, Alien Crush, and the second one, Devil's Crush, are really just shining examples of this cohesive package like wholly yeah. wholly dedicated to being what it is which is this holistic uh, otherworldly approach to obscured video pinball and they're the best of the best mm -hmm. um so there's three games in the traditional naxat crush pinball set uh, alien crush from 88 uh, Devil's Crush from 1990. The, both of those are on the TurboGrafx-16 slash PC engine. Uh, and then there is a Mega Drive port of Devil's Crush, um, which was done by Technosoft, which are the people who did Thunder Force. Mm -hmm. the, uh, Devil's Crush is probably the best one. Uh, uh, that has more of like a horror, heavy metal, medieval theme to it, uh, where like you're in, yeah. you're in a castle and there's dragons and, and ghosts and skeletons and the music is ridiculous. And you go to the top of the screen and there's just like a giant like rotating pentagram with like cultists dancing around it. And it might be the most heavy metal game ever made, even more so than <laughs> even more so than Brutal Legend because it's not. Uh, it's not tongue-in-cheek about it. It's just like, hey, guys, you like listening to Iron Maiden? Play this. And, uh, side note, there is also, specifically talking about heavy metal pinball games, a Motley Crue-themed pinball game for the Genesis and Mega Drive called, <laughs> called Crew Ball. Um, but I don't have a lot of experience with Crew Ball. I just know that it's a thing that exists. Um, so, yeah, uh, Devil's Crush, and then the third one is Jackie Crush, 
which name is weird and I don't really understand where this comes from, but uh, Jackie Crush was on the Super Famicom, uh, mm-hmm. and that one is actually themed on uh, Japanese ghost folklore. Okay. So there's like uh, pri- the primary theme being like Oni masks and like ghosts. Yes. Yeah. Um, Jackie Crush does not feel as good as the original two. It feels a bit more phoned in. The physics are a little like. It almost feels like lackadaisical. It's not as bombastic. Um, so that's like the that's like the main trilogy of the Crush Pinball. This went on for a little while. Then um, Tengen developed a sequel to Devil's Crush, which is Dragon's Revenge. Um, but it's just not as good. Uh, it's it's for the Genesis slash Mega Drive. Um, the fact that it's a different developer feels very apparent. Um, the physics aren't quite there. The presentation's not quite there. There's like a weird digitized like lady face in it that like makes me uncomfortable. Like in the middle of the table, um, it's just it's not as good. It is good, just not as good. If that makes mm-hmm. if that makes sense, it's it's one of those situations where if you'd played Dragon's Revenge without having played Devil's Crush prior, you'd probably feel like it was absolutely amazing. But it, mm. it's it's just a feeling of diminishing returns. Hmm. Uh, and then, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, apparently there was um, apparently there was a WiiWare game released yep. in 2008. Yep. There was a sequel slash remake of Alien Crush. Yep. I didn't know that existed. Yeah. That was done by that was done by Tamsoft and Hudson Soft. Yeah. Yeah. Your buddies at Tamsoft. Yep. Hmm. Um. So yeah, that was cool that that existed, right? Like 2008, which is like surprise, we made this. Uh, and it was pretty good. Um, not great. The ball physics weren't great. It didn't quite yes. feel right. Um, and there was, uh, it was kind of soured by some DLC, right? They're like DLC mm-hmm. tables and like special balls right. you could get. Um, and yep. it was, and it was only three tables, which mm-hmm. to be fair was more than the original 88 Alien Crush that only had one table with some boss stages. But at the same time, for like a 2008 like new game three tables felt a bit sparse mm-hmm. um and then you had to buy the rest of them um so so yeah that that's crush pinball which is just absolutely legendary and it's kind of one of those like gaming vocabulary kind of series like you really owe it yep. to yourself to to play them because they're just they are it right like they especially the first two are just the prime example of how to do this right how to make a fully committed video pinball table that's fun with obscured goals that are only possible digitally Mm -hmm. um and i just love them Uh, yeah i I, like they they are my they are my go-to games like when i have 10 minutes before work or i'm waiting to leave for a movie or something and it's like you have five minutes to kill like i will fire up alien crush almost religiously yeah yeah sounds good i I mean with my sort of lack of knowledge of turbo graphics and pc engine these aren't ones that i know particularly well but um yeah which which ones of these were on the pc engine mini remind me uh, I want to say both of them, but maybe it's just Devil's, or maybe one or the other. I don't Let's see yeah, PC be... Engine Mini. A- any one of them is a gem. So yeah. So either way, you win at life if you get immediate access to any of them. Uh, it definitely Alien Crush. 
And yeah, it doesn't look like Devil's Crush. So you get the first one, you'll get Alien Crush. No, that's, no, that's cool. So. Yeah, cool. All right. Yeah, so one of the things also that's important about Naxat Crush Pinball, which. Now, there may have been games that did this before Naxat Crush Pinball, but these are the earliest games I can really think of that did this heavily, which was the notion that in video pinball, your whole screen didn't have to encompass the entire table. Yes. The, the yeah. idea that these tables could be large and expansive and cover multiple screens and be tiered and there'd be a whole nother, like you'd, you'd hit the ball up, the screen would transition, there'd be a whole nother section with another set of flippers, and then if you lost the ball down there, it would still drop back to tier one, and then only then would you die if you dropped the ball on tier one. Yeah. Right? Like, so yeah. like, I'm sure other games had done that prior, but like, Naxat Crush Pinball made these expansive tables with these multiple tiers, and that always really stood out to me. Uh, yeah, time, time scanner kind of worked like that. So you, okay. you would shoot, you'd shoot the ball into the, the top half of the table, and if you drained it down past the flippers in that top half of the table, it would scroll down into the bottom half of the table, and there were sort of uh, pipes and tubes up the side of the stage that you could use to get back up to the top and that sort of thing. So, And the only way to, to do the time-traveling thing was to, was to be on the top half of the table, so you had to sort of develop the skills to be able to hold it up there at the top as long as possible. So, yeah. That was uh, that was definitely a thing as as um, back in Time Scanner as well. Cool, cool. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, and that kind of talking about that and the PC Engine and Turbo Graphics also gives me a good segue to talk about another really interesting video pinball game that I really like that I don't hear a lot of people talk about, which is Time Cruise Two. Okay. Uh, Time Cruise Two is a really cool pinball game because it kind of takes what I just mentioned to the extreme in that the stage is massive. Mm -hmm. like many many screens um and it almost feels like it's a maze that you navigate via pinball not a pinball table if that yeah. makes sense so time cruise doesn't just go vertically in, in in terms of multiple tables it also goes horizontally so like there are tables next to the tables next to the tables that you can only get to by like hitting up certain ramps. So yeah. it, it just feels like you're in this massive Rube Goldberg machine that's controlled via pinball. Um, and there's really just nothing like it. it just the, there's so many screens to transition between. It, it's almost it's easy to get lost. Like, have you yeah. ever gotten lost in a pinball table? Like, it's crazy. It's a very unique game. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the whole so, thing has like a like a Jules Verne like time machine like aesthetic, which is really pleasing. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, what you're describing there sounds like a good segue into Flipnik. Yes, we could talk about Flipnik. Yes. So so Flipnik was on uh, PlayStation Two. So we're jumping forward in time a bit. Um, this was 2003. Um, developed by Sony, uh, brought west by Ubisoft of all people, um, and the the idea behind Flipnik is pretty much what you were just describing there. So the the idea of these massive tables that are would be physically impossible because they're so huge and there's different segments to them, and you have to learn your various routes around them, how to get to the different parts of them, and there's certain things that open up according to what you've done on the table and mini games to play and all that sort of thing and. There's a lot of mechanics in Flipnik I still don't understand as well. Like, I have no idea what the experience point system is for. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, so, so Flipnik, Flipnik also um, 
kind of uh does an interesting thing with its structure as well in that it's not you, you can play it as a straight score attack game if you want to but the, the sort of the main way that you progress through the game and unlock new stuff in flipnik is that each table has a series of missions for you to complete um which involve engaging with the various mechanics that you find on the table so some of these missions are essential to complete in order to unlock new tables uh, and other ones are just optional things and i think you, you sort of get other rewards and stuff if you do manage to complete all these optional ones but yeah there's so there's there's like a real mix of different things that you have to do as part of these missions so sometimes you might have to um sort of repeatedly accurately hit a particular target in order to trigger a table feature sometimes there's sort of enemies on the table that you need to destroy and defeat sometimes there's sort of hit bumpers a certain number of times sometimes you have to reach a particular location um there's there's one that i remember where you have to sort of hit balls up a waterfall at one point yeah it's, yeah it's it's just ridiculous and flimnik is wonderful just because of the way it's presented i think so yes it's it, it's it, it's it's got it's sort of simultaneously modern and very retro to me so it's got this lovely sort of chunky physical feeling to it so so like it 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 does the best job it can at sort of feeling like playing a real pinball table so like the the flippers have got a really nice sort of snappy response to them that it feels like pressing the flipper buttons on a real pinball table. Yeah, that was important to them to get the movement yeah. and like the snap of a, of a of a physical pinball flipper yeah. co- correct. And sort of the, the 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 mechanical sounds it makes when you hit bumpers and 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 slingshots and that sort of thing they 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 really nail that as well. But at the same time, it's got this it's got this lovely sort of um, I kind of don't know how to describe it. It's it's sort of an eighties home movie aesthetic they have going on over the top of all this. So like anytime you trigger a feature on a table in Flipnik, you get this wonderfully sort of blurry, wobbly video sequence that overlays itself on top of things. And it's always kind of deliberately slightly amateurish. And it's this, just wonderful. I just was, I just love it. This was like in the heyday of when like Tarantino style celebration of Grindhouse cinema was very popular. Oh yeah. That makes sense. So yeah. it's kind of it's very much like a celebration of that. Like I remember, like there's like a UFO challenge, and it's just like yes. like invaders from space, like yes. like the UFO. Like it's just all very much like a celebration of like not just that, not just pinball, but also the type of like late '60s, '70s, and early '80s popular culture world that pinball was a part of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, that yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I hadn't considered that perspective before. That's that's very cool. Yeah. So, like I like I'll read to you. Like I was very tired when I assembled my notes for this episode. So like I'll read to you my like high level note verbatim for for Flipnik because this is always very entertaining. <laughs> Flipnik attempts to be ultimate pinball. That's the subtitle for Flipnik, right? It's the name of the game is Flipnik Ultimate Pinball. Uh-huh. Right. Flipnik attempts to be ultimate pinball and it succeeds not by attempting to be a realistic pinball experience. Flipnik is in fact a celebration of the spirit of pinball and a vision of what pinball could be when freed from the necessity of realism in scale, shape, and functionality of a pinball table. Yes. 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 And, and yeah, it's, 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 so the fact you wrote that in a sort of tired haze is kind of kind of appropriate for the the kind of feeling of flipnik because the whole thing feels a bit like a fever dream at times doesn't it yes because there's there's this <laughs> another good quote from it was from the manual i think where they described the game as an enjoyable simple action amazing pinball game for you 
Fair enough, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> which, is, which is just a sentence that just isn't quite right, but you, you know what they mean. But like this, just stuff like when, when you when you start the game, you get like that big sort of chilled out cutscene of like a drop of silver descends to the stage, and it's like your, your pinball is actually like this drop of liquid metal that coalesces into a ball when it lands on the table and that sort of thing. And every time you get multi ball, there's sort of like this breathy female voice going, "Have a great time." Have a multi ball. <laughs> yeah, it's just. The whole thing almost wants to position almost this, like, evangelical, like, celebration of pinball, right? Like, yeah. like pinball not just as a thing you can play, but, like, a lifestyle and a philosophy and, like, something to be loved. And, yeah. like, I don't know how else to describe it because, like, it, it must be said that, like, although Flipnik is... Um, you know, full of unrealistic tables and scenarios and goals and missions, unlike what I was describing earlier with Naxad Crush Pinball, Flipnik is pinball. Yes. Like, yes. there are silver rails and bumpers with stars on them. Like, it is trying to be the world's most, like, if you, the world's most bombastic real pinball table while still yes. being, while still being pinball. Yes. Like, and, that, and, that, that- and that's important. Yeah, and that that sort of lifestyle thing uh, sort of plays into some other stuff that is included with the game as well. So there is an amazing tutorial mode in in Flipnik um, that that walks you through things I've never seen a pinball game explained to me before. It, it's, it sort of talks all about like flipper technique and how you can catch the ball and how you can toss it between the two flippers to sort of get it where you want to go and how how to aim. <laughs> yeah. Like. Um, like, like one thing that I know we both want to talk about is that neither of us are particularly good at pinball. No, but we f- we find these games enjoyable. But I think I learned more from Flipnik's tutorial mode than I've I've learned from sort of playing pinball games in the past. There, there is just so much information there, and it's it's kind of overwhelming in some ways because there's there's so much stuff you can get it to teach you, um, and it's quite challenging to implement that knowledge in the middle of a game. But it it, it is all there, so it. Like you say, it is a celebration of pinball as a lifestyle, as a culture, as uh, I sort of described somewhere in one of the articles I was researching as, as an indoor sport as well. So it's sort of techniques mm-hmm. that you need to learn um, and practice to be able to get good at. And Flipnik, because it's also a good pinball simulation as well as being this ridiculous over-the-top game, it does a great job of sort of allowing you to practice those um, those techniques as well. And, and, and it, it takes the time to teach them to you as well, which is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those games that I, like, I put in, like, the master class category. Yeah. Like, Flipnik is a master class in excellence in game design. Yeah. It's, it's just the perfect holistic combination of proper physics achieving its goals in terms of gameplay and interactivity while having this holistic package of visual and thematic and aural presentation. It's just yeah. so committed to what it is. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful game. Yeah, I I, I find it really interesting as well because I'd never heard of it until I think last year or so when someone yeah. someone raised it. It might have been you, but there was there was also someone else I know who is very into Flipnik as well. And we I was we've bonded of, I, many times talking <laughs> talking about yeah. Flipnik. Yeah, but it's it's one of those games I don't remember ever. I didn't know it existed back when the PS2 was current because I don't remember seeing anything written about it ever. Yeah, I don't know about uh, obviously your territory much, but in the US, uh, Capcom published it and it was a 1999 budget release near the tail end of the PS2's life. 
Right. So, like, for us in the States, it wasn't a big thing. It was just one yeah. of those, like, those in the know yeah. bought Flipnik. Like, it was like it was one of those, like, word of mouth, like, like buy it now, you'll regret it kind of games. Yeah. Yeah, so, it, yeah, it, it just, sort of, just sort of surprised me because sort of pinball games have kind of been a constant throughout most game generation so like there, had, there have been at least a few sort of well-regarded pinball games in every generation and like um going back to your earlier definitions as well at the moment sort of the fashionable thing to do is to sort of provide an accurate simulation of real tables so there's, there's things like that pinball hall of fame thing mm-hmm. which has a bunch of um it's sort of seen almost as a as a means of archiving old tables that either are very difficult to get hold of anymore or are difficult to maintain and that sort of thing they're preserved digitally in that game and then you've got things like um zen studios games the pinball fx games and so on as well which again they are very accurate simulations of pinball but in that case they're based on original tables in some cases licensed in some cases they're original designs and those are very good um but but again they 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 kind of issue that sort of fantasy aspect that we're talking about with flipnik here um in in favor of, of of doing something that is kind of just pinball if you mm-hmm. like uh which is interesting um now a little while back i uh i covered uh senran kagura peach ball as well uh, which which i found it a really interesting game because um it it reminded me of flipnik in a lot of ways it's it's not quite as large in scope as flipnik is so the, the tables aren't quite as big but they the kind of structure and the way that game is designed is is very similar to Flipnik. So it's all very mission based, for example. Okay. So, so you are it, it, when you're playing a a game of, of Senran Kagura Peach Ball, you have this list of missions down the side of the screen that are everything from uh, just just bop the girl, which is just hit, hit the girl on the table with your pinball, to sort of hitting specific table features or getting things in the right order or obtaining a particular score and so on. And um, rather than requiring you to do specific objectives uh like flipnik did in in peach ball you earn uh these points for each mission that you do with more difficult points uh, more difficult missions being worth more points and you fill up a meter uh with with these points that you acquire and every time you fill a meter to one of these segments you get a sexy challenge um and a sexy challenge is, is where you are taken to uh, basically a completely different arena. So this is where sort of the physically impossible angle comes from. You sort of get sucked inside the table into this room that's inside the table where the girl's standing in the background. And then there's some sort of minigame to do that's usually some variation on hit these targets. So like in one there might be a sort of... Um, a sort of uh, like a noodle stand racing around the place and you have to bonk it with your pinball a few times in another one there might be umbrellas spinning around and you have to hit them when they're open and that sort of thing so a uh, bunch of different mini games that way um and then the 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 two tables that are in that game both have their own sort of um unique approach to how they handle their overall structure as well so um the first one which is um which is called uh shinobi park uh, this is sort of based around a, a fairground theme and the idea in that one is mostly engaging with table features and sort of sort of hitting hitting the same table feature accurately multiple times in order to trigger something so for example there's a, there's a ferris wheel that you need to hit the ball into and if you get three balls into the ferris wheel then um it will stun the girl for a little while which allows you to get bonus points by hitting her in certain places um <laughs> <laughs> um 
and then there's another one where you have to you have to bash a, a, a teacup ride and the teacups are all bumpers and you fill up a meter by uh hitting all the teacups with the with the ball and so on and when that's full again you can you can use that feature to stun the girl for a short period and that's a good way of getting a bunch of free points and so on so the night the thing i liked about peach ball is it, it doesn't have um a tutorial in quite the same way as flipnik did but uh, what it does have which a lot of pinball games lack is that the first time you hit a feature it gives you it gives you a tutorial on that feature and what it means and what it does um and so one of the things that i've always found quite challenging about pinball in general is when you're presented with a table and there's all these flashing lights and lanes and targets and stuff and you don't know what the fuck any of them do mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you just sort of you just sort of hit hit the ball randomly around stuff just hoping something cool will happen yeah. whereas in peach whereas in peach ball it explicitly gives you instructions as to what each thing does why you might want to hit it why it might be helpful to do that and so bit by bit you can learn these tables very well you can learn it even gives you instructions on which bit of the flipper you need to hit the ball with in order to hit that thing consistently Oh, so you still need to so you still need to practice to be able to actually pull that off consistently but it tells you right if you want to hit this and you want to use the left flipper right on the end and it will go straight into this hole and so obviously you still need the reflexes to be able to time that properly but it, it has given you an idea of how to aim and that's a slightly different approach to what flipnik took with teaching you how to play pinball it's kind of a more sort of um i don't know what the right word for, for it is i guess I, I guess flipnik kind of teaches you the theory whereas peach ball is kind of teaching you in practice in some ways sure and i found over over the course of my time with peach ball story mode i was getting noticeably better and getting noticeably higher scores the further mm-hmm. i went despite the fact that i was i was basically playing the same tables there's there, there are just two tables in peach ball which is sort of like the main criticism people have had of it but what I found with that game is that because there's only those two tables, you get to know those two tables really well. Yeah. And because it's taken the time to teach you what all the different features on those tables do, you, the, the longer you play for, the better you get to know those tables, the more accurate you get at shooting the various features and so on, which means that when you jump into the free mode, which is entirely high score based, um, yeah, you, you can play for hours at a time once you, once you get the hang of it. So yeah, I, I I really like Peach Ball. It's 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 a good game. Um, it's I, I, I can understand why people find it a bit limited. Um, so like I say, like two tables doesn't sound like very much, but I spent a long time with it. I really enjoyed the story modes that it adds to it. It's it's very much a fan disc for Sen- Senran Kagura rather than. Um, sort of something that slots into the main plot but that's fine as as we've talked about a number of times previously with this series one of the biggest strengths of that series is that it's got this virtual cast of characters that transcend their original context and it's just fun to hang out with them even if they're not doing anything mm-hmm. important yeah you're attached to um, these characters yeah and this is this is just a great fun way of engaging with them in, in a different way that we haven't seen before so yeah that's that's a lot of fun cool yeah i i do want to get my hands on it it's just in the onslaught of games in the past three months, like it yeah. just has, it hasn't been a priority because there's been so much. There's been so many other games I wanted to pay full price for and then not play that yeah. I, I didn't feel like I could pay full price and not pay and not, for Peach Ball and not play it. Yeah, so. no, 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 I, I get you. I, th- I think Peach Ball brings up uh, a point that I know you wanted to make, which is that pinball games work really well on handheld systems. Yes, so, yes. So like Pe- Peach Ball, you can play with with the Switch in uh, in handheld mode. And in fact, it specifically recommends that even if you're playing it on the TV, that you do it with the Joy-Cons detached rather than playing as a um, 
with with like a controller or the joy cons in the dock or that sort of thing just oh, so you kind just so you kind of get that sort of physicality feeling of having the flippers out having your hands spaced rather, apart yeah. as if you're like hugging the table yeah yeah exactly so something so, so, I mean, tell, tell, me, tell me a bit about your thoughts on pinball for handhelds, then. Well, I just kind of think as an extrapolation of what I discussed with the Naxat Crush Pinballs as being, like, one of my go-to experiences for, like, brief gameplay sessions, yeah. there's just something about kind of the non-committal score-chasing kind of feeling of pinball that mm-hmm. makes it perfect for a handheld, like, 10-minute goes, 20-minute goes, when you've got a handheld with you. Yes. So, like, some, yeah. like, some of my fondest memories of uh, handheld pinball are, like, uh, with my little sister trading back and forth with Pokemon Pinball and the Game Boy Color oh, yeah. on like road trips, yeah, um, like Pokemon Pinball was great, and it it was one of those games that had the rumble, the rumble feature, oh, yeah, built in, and it was just cool to see Pokemon, like a franchise I love, obviously uh, tied to pinball, and then with challenges themed around the Pokemon, right? So yeah. you could. You could like you were you'd be like presented with a Pokemon on like a digital screen, and then you would like achieve the certain like score missions or like knock down like certain targets to evolve that Pokemon, and like that's how you move that game along was by like evolving the Pokemon it gave you by achieving your your different goals. So it was just obviously cool to take a, a franchise I loved and map it to pinball, and it was just like I said, I have super fond memories of playing that. And, like I have other friends who like had you know the original the original Game Boy growing up, and one of the first games they had was Kirby's Pinball Land. Yeah. And that was a great example. You know, we off, we've we mentioned Kirby often in on this podcast in the same way that you kind of, we mentioned Senran Kagura, in that, like, Kirby has, be, there are mainline Kirby games, but Kirby has in many ways become kind of this vehicle for exploring other kinds of genres and gameplay styles in, like, a very specific in like the Kirby way, which is like a yes. very, which is a very specific, friendly, approachable way, and yeah. so like Kirby's Pinball Land is just this chubby, fun, good-natured pinball game that you can play on the go, yeah. and, I, and I love it. And like those are both Nintendo games, and like Nintendo's always kind of like held this going forward. So like even on the Game Boy Advance, there was uh, Mario Pinball Land. Which was a ton of fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Mario Pinball Land was a very unique pinball game in that it did not have tables in the traditional sense. Okay. Like, it was just stages that were just big and open and would just have stuff in them, like bumpers. There were no, like, rails and transitions and, like, traveling. It was just every every table was a self-contained screen with no verticality. It would just fit into the, the Game Boy screen. And then there would be just enemies and challenges to tackle within that individual screen. Mm-hmm. So it really lent itself well to, like, brief play sessions. Yeah. And there, and the, but there were many of these small stages then. And then, like, cool boss fights. It was just a very Nintendo way of conceptualizing pinball. Oh, that sounds cool. I've not come across that one before. Yeah, but, it's, uh... it's, a, it's a really neat game. Mm. It's a really neat game. Cool. Right. Any other pinball-y things you want to talk about before we wrap up for today? Yeah, I just had one more game I wanted to throw a mention out to. Because um, we did talk a bit about some modern stuff. You, you know, you had mentioned, like, the Zen pinball and the... Yes. The, the, like, so, like, those are really cool examples of, like, just using, like, the best of modern tech to create uh, a digital representation of proper pinball. Um 
But with new tech also comes even greater ability to obscure pinball in the way I was discussing. And one of the neatest games in recent history that's come out has been Yoku's Island Express, which yeah. I, I know got quite a bit of positive lip service when it was first introduced. But what Yoku's Island Express is, which is crazy, it just throws everything you know about digital pinball out the window in that it's, it is not an attempt to be a pinball game. It is an attempt to be a open platform, an open concept 2D platformer side-scrolling game where mm-hmm. your primary method of interacting with this world just happens to be pinball mechanics. Yeah. So this is a game with levels, with goals, with dialogue, with characters you have to meet, with places you have to go to move a story along. And it's never, like, pinball as a concept is not expressly discussed or mentioned. Everything is obscured within the game, right? There's no there's no silver rails. It's just yeah. tree branches and, and, and rivers and all. And so everything's obscured uh, to be part of this self-contained world. But it just happens to be pinball. Pinball is how you move. Pinball is how you get to the next place, how you find that next item. Um. And, and also it's very unique to me because I think when we traditionally think of pinball digitally, digital pinball conceptually, we always the, – the, the instinct from a development standpoint is to almost always present it from a top-down perspective. Yeah. Right? Like you're looking at the table from the top down or from a canted angle with perspective. But Yoku's Island Express is specifically a side-scroller. Yeah. Like, this this world is presented as a side-scroller. There's no sense of looking top-down at it. Like, it's very clear that you're moving left to right when you're playing this, which, which uh, it's such a small thing, but it's very unique. Um, yeah, sounds, sounds cool. I, I remember you talking this, about this a little bit when it first came out, and yeah, it sounds, sounds really interesting. Yeah, I had played a demo of it and just instantly fell in love with it. And it's available on I think I think PS4 and Switch. I don't know about the Xbox because I never yeah. do. But it's it's <laughs> readily available and it's quite good. Cool. All right. Anything else you want to bring up? No, I think that's it for me. I mean, I could I could do I, I could do this all day, <laughs> right? But like, I think that all kind right. of hits hits all the most important stuff. Yeah. Yeah, well, a lot of games I need to go and check out, apparently. <laughs> I have my PC Engine emulator up and running ready. So, anyway, uh, before we wrap up, would you like to tell people where to find you online, as usual? Absolutely. Uh, you can always see my newest artwork at MrGilderPixels.com or on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram as MrGilderPixels. Cool. And you can find my writing at MoeGamer.net and uh, my videos on YouTube. Uh, which you may well be already watching this podcast on. Uh, don't forget, there's an audio-only version of the Mario Gamer podcast that you can subscribe to over on SoundCloud, on iTunes, or now on Spotify as well. Um, and if you're listening to the audio-only version and you want pretty pictures and animations to go with the things that we're talking about, then you can check me out on YouTube. There's links to that on MarioGamer.net. So, just remains for us to say, as always, thank you very much for watching and or listening, and we'll see you again next time.
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.